Welcome, mountain bikers. It's an honor to have finally connected with this week's guest on the Inside Line podcast. Cam McCall is a household mountain biking name. I've had the privilege of watching his career blossom from stoked grom with knee shin pad straps flapping in the breeze as he's doing Indian airs to world-class free rider, now on-air personality as commentator for some of mountain biking's biggest broadcast events like Rampage and Joyride. I owe a lot to Cam and his family for helping me get a career off the ground some 15 years ago. They always made themselves available to shoot photos or videos when I was cutting my teeth, and I'll be forever grateful. Thank you, guys. I met with Cam at his home in Bend, Oregon, a week or so after the 2018 Rampage event. He was in a sling, a few weeks out of a shoulder surgery, ready to talk. We discussed this year's Rampage, its format, the judging, the digging, going to some of the history and highlights of his career, and end up discussing what the future of mountain biking and a career for Cam might be. There's so many things I wanted to talk about, and I think a part two will be in order someday. We didn't even touch on his vulnerable and hair-raising part in the new mountain bike movie Reverence, which was just released. But any time with Cam McCall is a good time, and I hope you have a good time listening to this episode. This Vital MTB Inside Line podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA. Shop for great deals and get professional advice on your favorite mountain bikes, components, and riding gear. Over 2 million happy cyclists served since 1994. Visit JensenUSA.com slash the Inside Line podcast and use code InsideLine for 10% off qualifying items. Max's Tires. Where the rubber meets the dirt, Max's makes no compromise tires for any rider, any trail, any time. All right. <clears throat> then another thing that somebody told me is that you go like this. As low as you can go, uh-huh. for as long as you can go, before you start doing some talking thing, it clears out all your raspiness. <laughs> really? I feel like you're like George Harrison or something in yeah. 1972. Or... <laughs> <laughs> it's sick. Plus, it looks cool on the screen. Are you comfortable right there? Just as comfortable as I'm going to be, man. All right. How's, how's that arm? What happened to your arm? It's... Let's officially start with some levels. Yeah. You can tell us what happened to your, yeah. to your wing. Because it's so boring to talk about why you decided to get shoulder surgery, I started making a video because like, I'm just kind of sitting around right now. And uh, I started making this video. It took all the shots that I have of my shoulders popping out, whether it was the left one or the right one, just so I could quickly like say the videos for a minute or something. I have no idea how long it's going to be, but I've got it all like outlined out in a Word doc of what it's going to be. I'll throw some voiceover over it, but it'll be funny and it'll be a cool way of showing. Here's why I got shoulder surgery. Yeah. Because the the um, Reader's Digest version is both of my shoulders were popping out for so long, I never knew which one to get fixed first. And so the left one was to the point where it was so bad that I just had to do it. And that was like the beginning of 2012. And then this one was just kind of hanging on until I decided finally to do it now. And so in the video, you'll see all my shoulder popping out. And you'll be like, oh, that's oh, right. Now, the, now both the shoulders are good. But it'll be funny. There's like not all the times are on video, but a lot of them are on video. So it'll yeah. be pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, that's, dude, that's one of the things when I'm thinking like, all right, get some questions going. So basically your entire career has been documented. It's not like 
hey, tell us what happened in 2013 with your favorite bike or whatever. Like, all oh, that stuff's been documented. So It's crazy. Yeah, trying to, trying to get some different stuff in there. But should we do an official intro and kick it off? Yeah. I'll drink coffee while you do the intro. I like it. Good. <laughs> Rockstar coffee? Should we throw a plug in there? Do you yeah, get, this Every is time Rockstar we say Rockstar, coffee. do you get money? Yeah, yeah. This is Rockstar <laughs> coffee. Well, I do have the Rockstar next to the coffee. I see it. It's true. I don't like caffeine at all. Really? <laughs> you don't need it. Vital MT Beers. This is the Inside Line Podcast. I'm Sean Spomer. And I'm here with legend, I'd like to say friend, person who helped me get to where I am today. Oh, goodness. Definitely friend, yes. Yeah. Cam McCall. Free rider, announcer, happy guy. I, I've been on the way here. I was trying to think about if you could quantify how many people you got stoked on bikes, just what that would be worth to our community, just the amount of people riding, people psyched, all that. But uh, I'm psyched to be able to, to come out here and, and see you again. It's been a while, and to touch base. I know, I'm stoked you're here, man. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, if that's true, if I got people stoked on riding bikes, that feels good. I, so dude, I appreciate you saying on. that. That's, come on, that's you know you have. Oh, man, I hope so. That's, yeah. that's rad. Well, dude, the first time we met, I think, was like oh three ish and i lived in redding norcal and drove like six hours to aptos to meet you and hang out and do all that stuff here we are 15 years later and i just drove five hours from boise to bend to do the same thing so i'm like that's it's kind of sick but at the same time is it going to be sad if in another 15 years i'm like hey let's go let's hang out and i'll drive five hours to talk about virtual reality <laughs> e-bike free ride things <sighs> yeah well, we'd be in the same places every 15 years we move somewhere that's five hours away from each other don't we <laughs> seems like it yeah virtual reality. So, but thanks thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being on the show and just personal thank you for just all you've done for me and being available to do stuff like this and back in the day. So it's always, it's always meant a lot. Dude, so. thank you. Thank you for coming all the way here to doing this too, because we've been talking about doing a podcast for a while and we haven't been able to line it up. But now that I'm sitting in this sling, I'm like, like going stir crazy. I want to do something. Right. So it's so funny that you texted me the other day because I was thinking, you know, I need to just put myself in LA so we can do this podcast once and for all. Then you text me and say that you now live in Boise and you're coming in three days. It's like, geez, I put it out there in the universe, and then here it is. It's perfect. <laughs> That's sick. I love it. Um, give my wife a shout because I made these plans forgetting it's our anniversary today. So. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was, that was kind of lame on my part. Big but. shout out to Mrs. Spomer. Wow, yeah. that's she's solid, dude. <laughs> it's amazing. <clears throat> All right. We're fresh off Rampage. Before we get into kind of some of the you know, typical stuff we ask on the show, let's, let's talk about Rampage here. What's, what's going on? I want to know kind of your, how you prepare, like your plan for a week, a weekend, however long you're there. But talk to me about the first run. Godziak drops in, he explodes, overcooks, like the first thing, like what goes through your head when you see the first rider do that? Oh, okay. So just before even the first rider dropped, I was already this year incredibly worried that it was going to be what you would call like a bad year, right? Hmm. Where, where, where there's tons of crashes and tons of injuries and you go, oh my God. Because last year, 2017, was a good year, maybe a great year. It was potentially the best one ever. Every single rider who dropped in, 
in at least one of their two chances, they landed a run. Mm-hmm. And that's never happened before. That hardly ever even happens in slope style. So we went, all right, is the pendulum going to swing all the way back to the other side of the spectrum right now where nobody lands a single run, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I am nervous for a couple different, or a handful of different reasons. I have friends and family out there doing it, and I can feel the vibe that nobody's ready. And uh, there's is, a lot of... Is that what it felt like? Like the riders were just not prepared yet because it was a new site and all that yeah there was so much stuff that hadn't been hit and then also so much stuff that hadn't been linked together in succession the like i see as much as i possibly can between like production meetings and stuff like that every spare moment that i have i'm up on the hill watching everything and i want to see and know about everything that's going on and so to the best of my knowledge, the only person I saw drop in from the start gate, make it all the way down to the last part of his line was Adolf Silva. And that was uh, right before the event. And the like wind, the morning of the event? The morning of the event. Okay. And so the wind was high and everybody was sitting on top of their Rollins above whatever they needed to hit that day, waiting for the wind to drop so they could do it. And at that point, in an ideal world, everybody will hit that thing that they were thinking about all night and then leave linking it all together for their run, with the exception of Adolf doing that. So reasons why I was nervous. I knew a lot of people weren't 100% ready. I have friends and family out there. And then also, I probably should just hide behind a curtain on this and not tell anybody, <laughs> I'm on the Rampage Selection Committee for Wild Cards, right? Okay. So we go out on a limb sometimes and put people out there and then people have opinions on that, say, that's a horrible idea. That person's not going to make it out alive. And you go, oh, great. I was a part of the reason why they're there. And who was that? Reed? Adolf Silva. Adolf. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. So for me... Why, why do you think... Because he's kind of just slope-style dude. He's never been out in the desert on cliffs. Like, is that why people thought he wasn't going to make it? Yeah. So he's in, like, this little... I don't know. He's in this beautiful period of his career or whatever you want to call it his trajectory as an athlete where uh he's not scared of very much and he learns quickly and i do think that a lot of the riders who were worried about him being in on the competition they watch him ride something like king kong and since he's new to the whole big mountain thing he doesn't look as good as some of the guys who've been out there for 15 years on king kong and that's scary because you should be able to ride king kong with fluidity with style and so the selection committee, we put him in because we're thinking, all right, he's experiencing this little renaissance right now where he's hmm. learning all these things. And given the opportunity, he's probably going to rise to the occasion. But the word there is probably. We don't know for <laughs> sure, right? We're hoping. He's learning to base jump. His mom base jumps. He's gone from kid on a BMX who almost died crashing to like kid on a mountain bike who's doing all these crazy tricks to now kid getting on a bike with suspension and jumping off of stuff and loving every minute of it. And you go... Maybe this is like the the baking soda you could sprinkle into the cup of vinegar and, and it'll make something that you want to happen, you know? It'll explode in a good way. And when I saw him make it from the start tower to the landing of his final feature, I just felt so good. And I was like, all right, I think things are going to go well. Mm-hmm. But then the first rider drops and Simon Godzik, another rider <laughs> who I definitely backed really hard because... You know, I, I think he, given the opportunity, will get better and better on the downhill bike. And, uh, you know, little things in practice, you know, like maybe not using the front brake as much as you should in certain sections. It's like a whole different skill set out there. But when you're put in that Petri dish around all the best riders, 
there is a chance they're going to just learn super quick. Mm-hmm. So when he's the first rider to drop and he goes like way, way, way too fast into yeah. that thing. My brother had already told me the hardest thing about that jump is that the landing is steep and the lip is slack. So you're either going to just barely Ooh. make it over the knuckle and land right at the top or you're just going to you know, misjudge a little bit and sail over the landing. So he pretty much landed on the next cliff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, at that point I went, oh no. But, th- <laughs> but then it got better. It did. Yeah. It did. But okay. There's a whole lot I want to talk about Rampage since it's so recent. But you mentioned the, the linking issues, like riders didn't link things like Carson's run or a couple others where these, what appeared from the TV screen to be simple linking sections or maneuvers they ruin the whole run like that stuff was yeah. heartbreaking for yeah, Carson is. for sure that is heartbreaking and, and others so like is that just part of the growing pains it's like alright we need a new venue let's go and that's what's going to happen was it too rushed should that stuff have been taken longer I think there for every venue there's always going to be a first year and there's always going to be people who are advanced in the realm of choosing a really good line And Carson is definitely one of those people who's advanced in the skill of choosing a really good line. That hit that he flipped right before that big right-hand berm and then that connection double that he needed to make to get back up onto the ridge, that was really unique and cool. Like the step-down flip was like like a – and people on the internet who don't get it, and I'll tell you people on the internet, you just don't get it. (laughs) They might say that that, you know, Carson's landing is, oh, yeah, it's super groomed, but it's not really like – if you saw it before they raked it out, like that landing was pretty much already naturally there. And that nub that he launched off of, that he flipped off of, was already kind of a bit of a rise and already kind of a protruding cliff. So huh. the mountain talked to him and told him to go that way. Okay. Right? So he peeled off. He was the furthest riders left. He went and did that thing. And for that thing to work, the berm needed to work. And you're coming in really fast. And that's a 90-degree berm. And then not only does that berm need to... Uh, absorb all the speed it needs to redirect it in a 90 degree angle to then hit a jump that spoke to him that was already there Mm -hmm. that connection jump that he went too slow on in run number one and too fast on in run number two that thing was pretty much already there Mm -hmm. and they smoothed it out and made it clean but to get the perfect speed after flipping that big cliff riding that huge long landing banking that 90 degree right and then figuring out don't go too slow don't go too fast Mm -hmm. make it over that double and then connect back up that's that's right there like a pump track on steroids where like, you know, the consequence for missing the timing on a pump track, but on that particular spot, the jump <laughs> happened to be, you know, a big natural connector and to another jump. And that's what completely derailed his run. It was just misjudging, but I, I don't think so you, could... you feel like that line was the way he had it built. It was right. It was just a matter of figuring it out. Yeah. I think and so. he had two chances. To and, do it basically. Yeah, that small little connection piece right there wasn't done until the morning. Like Gilding and those guys were up there just slaving away on that thing, knowing that all the stuff that Carson had on had on tap for his run uh, wouldn't be linked if that connection didn't work. And then I don't know how many times he got to ride it in practice before going up for his run. I know he had some crazy um thing happened in practice where he cased something really hard and his head hit the handlebars and I think it was on that. Oh. So like maybe with a little bit more time knowing that, then he would have been able to put his whole run top to bottom. But yeah, that was no fault of his own. That was just the matter that was a case of having a really good plan, but just running out of time doing all the prep you need to make okay. it. Okay. Yeah, no, that's that's cool to hear because it's 
as you, I, I don't know, I, I think it's fairly well discussed online and stuff, but everyone's kind of in the dark about what's happening with builds and all that. Then there's a handful of videos out. So when showtime comes, all I see is a viewer is just like, Carson, that, that, that's not possible. Why did you build right there? But yeah. it obviously is possible. Yeah, so, that was one of my yeah. favorite lines. I was like, oh, this, looks this could win for sure. It had mm-hmm. everything you needed. When you look at all he had on it and all that he's capable of doing on that stuff, you're like, oh, this, this could totally be a, a winning line. And uh, the thing that people just don't get, and there's no way you could get it, man. Like, Unless you're there. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't get it unless I got there early enough to walk around on everything. Like, You can never be there early enough. Because it's amazing to watch that place go from unrideable to then having like 21 different routes down it. But, I mean, <laughs> yeah. people team up on things, so it's not 21 sure. different routes, but it's a lot of different routes. But watching somebody guinea pig something right next to you and then them landing on what the internet would call like a bike park, you're like, wow. I feel like, <laughs> oh man, I do a horrible job because you think that's a bike park. Wow. <laughs> The camera people, they do the best they can, yeah. but judging off of cameras this year, they had to use a lot of helicopter footage for the live broadcast, because you imagine they've got all those cameras out there, the guy who's making the show call switches to the wrong camera, not only is the, are the viewers going to be pissed, because they missed what that guy just did, but the judges aren't going to know what to score, because they went to the wrong camera, mm. so I feel like they defaulted to that overhead view, <laughs> which is good, because you can see them the whole time, but it also shrinks everything, it's the angle that shrinks everything the most. Yeah, for sure, I feel, I think it was Silva's POV run, because he was one of the first, and it might have been the same jump, or at least the same piece that Godziak exploded on, but Godziak, sorry, I pronounced the name wrong, but... Silva's POV run. That was the first time you see someone huck off and you're like, okay, cool. But then you see him come up to that lip and it's just blue sky and everything else is just cliff down below. That was the first time I was like, Oh my goodness. There's no way you can hit a blind jump like that and think you're going to survive. Yeah. And obviously they did. So yeah. yeah, perspective seems super tough. Like POV cameras make everything look easier also. So that's cool. You got that feeling from that, but <clears throat> Coming up to a blind step down where you can't see the landing, you just look like you're jumping into the valley floor. Yeah. Like that's something that you don't know unless you're standing on the cliff. And then just like that, coming into a lip, and the lip's tall enough to where all you see is sky, <laughs> and you know that there's like a perfect bike length of tranny somewhere. But how many times do you squeeze your right finger mm-hmm. to get there? Yeah. yeah. All right. <clears throat> all this, and I wrote something on the site about this. This is all prefaced with the people that put rampage on are incredible all their work like not trying to discredit it one bit the judges i said that they're the phds of free ride like it's in no better hands than spangler and those dudes i respect what they do they were out there they've seen it did brendan get robbed with when i first saw his line i thought all right this is one of the coolest lines on the hill mm-hmm. and Right away, I could picture him riding it. You know it's going to look amazing. And his team, they're like the coolest dudes out there because every single thing is a joke to them. They're laughing about everything. And it's hard, especially like toward the end, to still be laughing. And I was like, man, these dudes are doing everything right. And Rampage needs a line like this. And I said, I was thinking in my head, unfortunately, I'll bet this will be the line that everybody's saying got robbed, you know? Hmm. Because I'm looking at all the stuff that everybody else has and Brendan is the line that gives the people what they want. You know, the majority of the people out there want to see that kind of line, like real mountain biking that they can relate to. But then when you have people going off of 
you know, really big cliffs and really big trick jumps and doing the things they're doing. How do you put Brendan's run in front of some of those, you know? And like, we could maybe look at a list of results right now and go like, all right, should Brendan have been ahead of this guy or this guy? And really like kind of crunch the numbers on that. But when I first saw his line, I was like, all right, probably people's choice. You know, that'll probably be what it gets because the people will love it. They'll be pissed about where it placed. But if you walk around, if you look at like, oh, you're going to flat flip off of that, huh? And then, and you compare that with, all right, you're going to ride off of that rock. That rock, like I'm somebody who uh, maybe to a fault airs more on the side of um, entertainment than competition. Like even when I was competing, I... I would err on that side, and that's not necessarily a good thing for a competitor. Hmm. But that rock, that like makes me feel so good. I'm like, that's mountain biking, that's creativity, yeah. and I love it. And in a film segment, you know, that thing is like so perfect. And in Rampage, it fills a void. And if you look at Rampage as a show to entertain the people who love mountain biking and hopefully draw more people who don't love mountain biking yet into the sport, you're like, this run does exactly what we need to do right now. This is a sick run. But you compare riding off of that rock with flat flipping off of something that's, that's taller and bigger, but then you have to judge it. What do you do? Yeah, I don't know. Is <clears throat> I don't think Brennan should have should have won, but I was, I was surprised with how low the score was. And totally. again, that's also all right. Can the should the format of Rampage be changed? Can it be changed? How do you how do you deal with that stuff? Do you just run it and not care? And things like Reed's um kind of open loopish type of flip thing, like that was super sick. But I feel like stuff like that because it's not massive doesn't really go into a score. You know, like, is there an issue with the format? Like, what do you what do you think? To touch on one aspect of the format that I believe very strongly in, I will say that assigning numbers to thing to mm-hmm. things doesn't. It's pointless, man. Unless yeah. the numbers represent something, what is the point? Like, of course, people are going to be pissed if their favorite run of the event gets a sixty something out of one hundred. Like anybody who's gone through elementary school knows that a sixty is well. I don't remember. What is that? A C or a D or something? It's, <laughs> D it's minus, not yeah. good. It's not good. And so they go, a 60? How is that possible? That's like, that's as close to failing as we saw, hmm. you know, from a completed run. What's the point of having the numbers, man? It's stupid until the numbers mean something. Rank people. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who want the first run scores to come after everybody has done a first run. That's a damn good idea. It is, but yeah. you can't run the show that way, can you? Like, no other judged event does that like, either. I just said that I err to the side of entertainment over competition to a fault, and I know that, and I try to fix that because as a commentator, I need, you know, I need to treat this thing as a top-level competition because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But, um, But... You can't really do that in a live webcast format. They're, like you can, it's not impossible. But are the people who make the decisions going to let you? Probably not. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they, because it's a, a live webcast, they need to have scores come out. And they can't have rankings come out, I guess. And so, unless somebody who makes those decisions is willing to make a big change and uh, not follow the formula that most televised events run off of then I don't know how they're going to really fix it. I mean, I guess that's one baby step is taking away the scores and just ranking people. Like, I don't know. What do you think? Somebody drops in, does their run, and at the bottom, it just comes up and says fifth instead of 
67.9. Do you like, I don't know. Do you think that's super anticlimactic? Like it seems like, it, and you kind of, yeah. it you leaves the question. Yeah. Why is he fifth? Yeah. Why is he not seventh? And score breaks that down, but okay. <clears throat> the whole week leading up to it, the emphasis is on this creativity, the riders building their lines, this and that, like celebrating, digging fun ways down the mountain, but then they don't seem to count in the score like back to Reed's thing or, you know, Brendan's, I understand like a difficulty level has to be taken into account, but is that what gets lost is there's this hype on creativity and doing something unique, but then it doesn't really actually factor into the score. Yeah, no, it's true. Cause you could do the most creative thing of the event, but if that's getting compared against something that was a 60 foot flip off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest things that's ever done, I guess that's where the viewers also have to examine how they measure how they weigh out entertainment versus uh the sporting aspect of it because if the viewers want the most entertaining run to win the event the most unique and creative interpretation of that hill to win the event rather than one of the biggest feats that's ever been accomplished on a mountain bike then are they thinking too much about the entertainment aspect and not as much about the sporting aspect Mm -hmm. interesting yeah so what do you I mean, did you talk to the riders afterwards? Like, how, how do they feel about it? Are they all just psyched to survive? <laughs> like, do the results mean that much? I honestly think that, that it, Rampage takes a lot of time to digest. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't... So there was definitely chirping, you know, at the bit and spur and, like, conversations and stuff of people who didn't, who didn't think the, the scores were the way they should be. But nobody was like, nobody that I saw was like mega pissed. You know, I think because there's the danger element and everybody did make it out in one piece, I think the real anger of where you place probably doesn't manifest for a little while later after you're so psyched that everybody's okay. Because like the vibe at the Bittenspur is more like, yeah, we made it. All right. Then like, let's argue over who should have had, you know, 1600 more dollars or something like that. You know, that all seems a little bit. Um, not what you should be focusing on at that moment, but, uh, you know, I don't get super involved in that, honestly, because I choose to focus on, on what the event means for the sport and whether or not there are any casualties. And I know that's probably pretty cliche to say, but after we had that bad rampage a few years ago and, you know, one of our good friends had a life changing injury and, you know, a whole handful of other ones uh, we're, you know, sitting in hospital beds for a few days afterwards. You just, you get a, a more evolved sense of what's important at the end of that event. Mm-hmm. And I know people care about the prize. I mean, I know there's a lot of career implications to where people finish and stuff like that and shouldn't discredit that, but, but there's more important things at the end of that event than yeah. where people fell in the rankings. That's the way I see it anyways. Cool. Are you glad you're not competing anymore? Yeah, yeah. for sure. I uh, I have so much respect for everybody who still competes, and uh, I don't have any second thoughts about my decision to not be one of them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what's it like seeing Ty out there? I thought you're – I think when I saw it, it was like a segment in the live webcast, but it was you know you and Ty talking, and you seemed so proud of him. Yeah. Like just 
the way you two were interacting was really cool, but also it seemed like it was really scary for you. And why wouldn't it be? It's yeah. But yeah, no, I, uh, I have so much respect for that kid because he, he, he continues to push himself really hard and he, he's willing to put everything on the line to, to do the riding that he believes in. And he's seen enough consequence. He's experienced enough consequence where he knows better. And he's, he's been out in that desert so many times and his, his curve of appreciation for that landscape and that event in particular has been so dramatic. Mm. He, his first time ever being out there was in 03 when I did my first rampage. And this was the first of two times I watched him say that he despises that place, that event, and he never <laughs> wants to be a part of it again. Yeah. When I cartwheeled off a cliff, he freaked out and was like, I, this is the worst thing ever. I never want to be here. Do you remember how old he was then? Well, if I was 17, he would have been 14. Okay. So he's pretty grommy. I think you yeah. were out there that year also. Yeah, I think Ty had my video camera yeah. filming you. Yeah. <laughs> His footage is so funny because he's going like, Oh no! Oh no! Oh, oh! Oh no! Who was that? Oh, it was Jordy. Oh no! Like I can't even do a fourteen-year-old T Mac voice. It's hilarious. That footage is so classic. But that kid was scarred. And then somehow, fast forward, however many years later, fifteen years later, is where we sit right now. He's one of the best in the world at that event, and he dedicates all year to that event, pretty much. I mean, he still goes to the Crankworks stops and does speed and style and whip off and stuff like that, but you know all year is focused on rampage mm. and he goes in and he puts it all on the line every year he picks the biggest thing he's ever ridden up yeah. until that point like the big dog that he had this year is the biggest thing he's ever hit yeah like his comment about i've never free fell for that long like, yeah what's that gotta be like? yeah. <laughs> it's so much time in the air but <clears throat> because he's been out there looking at the train since he's a little kid and now he's competed in the event so many times i think this was his seventh one mm. He he picks really killer lines. He's definitely my favorite rider out there to watch. So like if I take myself away from it, like that's not my little brother. If I just look at his Instagram page, I'm like, this is the baddest dude out there. You know, <laughs> like he's got the sickest looking style. He, the tricks that he chooses to do are rad tricks and he can do them off of, uh, you know, a multitude of different types of hits. Then when it comes to rampage time, he puts together a, a, a run that's like, something that I'm most stoked to watch. Hmm. So yeah, it is a sense of pride, you know, just to watch him as a fan, but then also to be like, that's my brother. This is pretty, this is pretty rad. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever not want to watch? Yeah, <clears throat> for sure. Like, <laughs> so all I want to do is watch him guinea pig his biggest thing because I want to be there in case I can help in any way. Okay. But this year I wasn't able to because we had a production meeting in Springdale the morning that he had allocated to hitting his big thing. Ugh. So my hands were tied. I couldn't do it. It's fine because A-Rev is the best at judging speed and giving him the advice to put the wheels at the right part of the landing. But then also I'm like, okay, that's also nice. I'll just get a text saying he stomped it instead of having to just bite my fingernails off standing there <laughs> <All> going, morning. <laughs> Alex, did, did you think that one was too slow? Because I thought that one was too slow. I'm like such a wuss when it comes to watching him guinea pig stuff. It's crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Just looking over my Rampage questions. I think we got through all those good ones. You know, it's a shame about Rampage is nobody on the internet cares about it at all. You know, like there's there's no flooded forums about judging after rampage. <laughs> <laughs> like, did we look at the same internet? Are you serious? <laughs> All right, thoughts on the future of it. What do you what do you think? And 
not saying to like spill inside secrets if you know anything, but like, where do you think it goes? And okay. Was silver really talking about a double flip off a drop? Yeah. Okay. That. Yeah. So like I talked to Ty most nights while he's out there building and just to see what everybody is planning and uh, I'm also, he knows I'm nervous about putting Adolf in because I feel responsible if something bad happens. And he's like, yeah, Adolf did exactly what I was worried he was going to do. He put a giant kicker off one of the biggest cliffs there, and oh, he says man. he's going to double flip it. <laughs> I go, oh, great. And then when I got there and talked to Adolf, we ha- happened to bump into him standing on that same cliff, and there was a pile of sandbags next to it. And uh, I got the story. It turns out he had the kicker there, and I think maybe he didn't, uh, you know, think ahead enough to realize that if you put a kicker on a cliff before you've ridden the cliff, you have to guinea pig it with the kicker. <laughs> okay. So that was probably like, a, oh <laughs> shit, I got to do that. Yeah. And so I don't know if I think somebody went with that without his permission and tore the kicker out because everybody was like concerned with his safety if he was gonna. Really? Yeah, yeah. I think somebody just ripped the kicker out and. And I, that's a, the best thing that anybody could have done. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's kind of sick. Like that the community is willing to do that you yeah. know like someone might get a lot of flack for that but at the same time seems like maybe it should have been done no it's like straight up exactly what needed to be done because that kid his eyes were too big for his stomach at that point and without being enough being out there enough you just think all right it's the same thing as somebody paddling straight to the peak at mavericks or something like that <laughs> right away not only are you putting yourself in jeopardy but you, like that's jeopardizing everybody else the event like you, there has to be like a code of honor for safety out there. And I'm glad somebody stepped in because now he did his first rampage and took the, like the right size leaps. Mm-hmm. And now he's positioned himself really well to where I don't think he got in the top 10. I think he finished 11th or something like that, mm-hmm. but he's looking pretty good for coming back next year. Right. Yeah, like he he rose the occasion. Yeah. yeah. And sure. Maybe off of the big stuff, especially the beginning, like the early on practice days, he didn't look that in control. He looked kind of like a passenger off the big stuff. Mm-hmm. But by the time finals were ready, he looked way more in control. Maybe not the best style out of anybody on the hill, but he looked like he belonged there. Definitely. Yeah. For sure. Future of it? So, you, like, something like that, that's, that's, we're so lucky to have had it for so long. You can never think too far into the future. So let's just say next year, I think the future looks really bright for it because everybody has these lines that they've established and second year at a venue was always killer. Look at 2017, everybody goes and they just put the finishing touches on everything. And you know, there's a lot of hits that people wish they could have flipped off of, you know, step downs and stuff. So now you'll see those kickers pop up there. Um, and people won't be leaving those last minute Guinea pigs. till the morning of the finals and stuff like that. So I think if they choose to do the event again next year, which I hope so, but it's never guaranteed, you know, it's not like that. No, it's never guaranteed. Like, I think we're always lucky every time we get to October and it's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Look how much stuff gets kiboshed these days with people worried about stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, if somebody puts a lip on a huge cliff and says they're going to double flip it, that's putting the event in jeopardy if that person's <laughs> only flipped one step down in their life, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, so we got out of this year smooth, and next year, like on paper statistically speaking should be you know better than this year so hopefully that bodes well for the future but now we're on this path where it's kind of like two years per venue 
So say 2019 is killer, then you know you got to go through that process of looking around for another venue. And people take for granted that they'll just find another venue. You know you got to find the venue, make sure you can get it permitted, make sure you can get a road out there, make sure you can logistically get all the cables and everything you need out there, water, all that stuff. So to think that it's just like click and drag from one venue to the next, like I spent a lot of time with Todd Barber the last three years and Mm -hmm. like that dude works so hard to make that event happen. Everybody involved works so hard. So yeah, hopefully it's a long future still to come for Rampage, but yeah, every year we have it, we're lucky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I think about what he does to make it happen and I'm always kind of just like, why dude (laughs) (laughs) it seems like such gnarly work and then half the time everyone's just like this wasn't right or that wasn't right but it's so sick thankless for sure and i'm assuming you'd agree with this but let's say it was like a film film only thing like you couldn't get the riders to perform the same way if it was not a competition or not like these are your two runs that's it could you if you said like hey here's the zone 10 guys go make it happen before the end of the year and we'll put out a a tv event there is no way like the only way to to get people dropping top to bottom is for it to be an event and i know that the riders love the fact that it's an event there's Mm. nothing more exhilarating than being like this is a competition i have to start at the top and make it to the bottom and all eyes will be watching like Competitive riders like to be put on the spot. Yeah. They like to have that moment of all or nothing, you know, especially if you grew up watching Olympics, X Games and stuff like that. That feeling of being at the top of your game and having two chances to perform, you don't get that at a fest event or something like that where mm. it's all like fest is cool. I went to two of them this year and I had a blast. And I think that they're, you know, formula is good for what that purpose is. But if you tried to go with a fest formula for Rampage, you're you're gonna get different results. Just too casual, almost too casual, man. People hanging out at fest, you know. Just, <laughs> it's like, I, bikes. I love it, but it's not. It's you're not gonna rampage. Wouldn't be the same as like a rider judge jam session type of thing. And there's nothing stopping anybody from going out to the desert, any of the great desert zones, and and holding a session. What's stopping anybody from doing that? Hmm. You know, like go for it yeah but uh but when it comes to like pushing the sport and making it something that everybody from every other sport can look at and be like well this is one of the most badass thing that exists on the planet for sports you need to have the best riders in the world go top to bottom under pressure that's just like when i competed in the event there was no better feeling and that's cliche because you hear every single rider say that (laughs) in their finish line corral interview but you wouldn't get that with jam format. Oh, just go up there and try it again. Yeah. You know, people wouldn't rise to the occasion as much. Totally. All right. Let's get into some quick kind of pertinent history about where you came from. Because like I said, almost your whole career has been documented. You know, a lot of the questions I might normally ask have, have been answered or they're out there, but who got you stoked on riding a bicycle and what age, just kind of that really, really initial yeah time on two wheels i think the first thing that came to mind was more mountain bikes in particular but you're asking bicycles so now i have to really think man Hmm. um there was okay okay my grandpa had like a schwinn stingray in the garage my grandpa on my mom's side and uh they they were in santa cruz also and i think i was already riding bikes but there was something about this like 
spray painted Schwinn Stingray in the garage that I was like enamored with. I don't mm. know. I can't explain what it was. I just looked at it. And I was just like, oh my God, what is that? Like that thing is, <laughs> and I was like freaking out and I was probably bugging him because all I could talk about was that bike. And he's like, yeah, maybe someday we can get that thing down and clean it up for you. Huh. And like, like it was just hanging up in the garage. Yeah, yeah. And I was so persistent that someday was that day. I think he was probably like, Oh, oh really like now like and and now that i have kids i see when they get locked in on something it's just like like on the simpsons can we have a pool deck can we have a pool deck can we have a pool deck <laughs> i was probably just like grandpa that bike grandpa that bike grandpa that bike i don't know how old i was and i i know i was probably already riding bikes so there's probably a, a memory that i don't remember about like falling in love with the idea of pedaling mm-hmm. okay there it is yeah there it is you find it all right <laughs> yeah hard yeah, drive so, access so if people watched like you know bike videos that i was in you know at the beginning, you know that my parents had a pool in the backyard. So um, the pool jump that people saw in seasons and other things, uh, that was the first place where I would ride a bike. We would ride a bike, like very American, only left around the pool. <laughs> and my dad status. comes from a flat track background, so maybe that's why we would only ride around the pool left. But I remember, you know, training wheels right around it. And then he would, it's the same memory that everybody has, so it's probably boring. But he's holding on to the seat and pushing you. Mm-hmm. But since I'm going in a circle, a circle, that realization that I was riding by myself came when I got half of a lap. And I looked back and he was at the other side of the pool, like, whoa, oh, sick. You know, I'm riding by myself, yeah. crazy. So I think it was that, you know, realizing that riding a bike was, was very fun. And then the mm-hmm. shrimp right? And then I ended up on this old Dan Gurney rear suspension only bike from the 70s. Whoa. I think my dad had one and my uncle had one. And uh, this one, I think, was my uncle's old one. So I don't know where that thing came from. It somehow ended up in the garage. But that was the first bike I caught air on. Okay. And uh, Was it about emulating motorcycles for you or did it matter? I have no idea okay I think it was because okay there it is this is cool you're, I'm figuring things out it's because uh across the street from my parents house it used to be like this uh like nursery like flowers and stuff mm-hmm. and uh it was I think uh, abandoned and these kids made dirt jumps over there Whoa. and I could look out from my window and see them digging and riding and I remember, like, they had one of those, like, pesticide sprayers, and they were watering the jumps with that. Dang, really? And yeah. I remember watching them, and I'm like, what in the world are they, like, worried about bugs or something? <laughs> and so I remember walking over there, probably with my dad and my brother, and we saw the jumps. I'm like, oh, my God. And you know people are territorial over their jumps, so we'd wait until nobody So were these, there. like, BMX kids digging proper yeah. jumps? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, BMX kids digging proper jumps. And so, of course, we'd wait until they weren't over there, and then we'd go over there and catch air off of those proper jumps. And luckily, there was, like, some rollers, so you get you know, acquainted with where to put your body weight rolling up, rolling down. And then there was little tabletops that do that. And then the first double jump, I remember that vividly. And uh, I think, yeah, all those, like, those memories are what really kind of, like, solidified. I like doing this thing, but I like doing all these other things at the same time. Like, Mm -hmm. I had skateboards, and I played baseball and basketball, and I even had a pair of rollerblades. Like, so it was just everything, (laughs) you know? And it wasn't until I saw um, kids riding by on mountain bikes now I know where they were going. They were going to ride Cabrillo Trail. Okay. Uh-huh. Nicene Marks. And uh, my parents' house sits in between uh, a bike shop that at that point I didn't know existed that they would hang out at. And then they would pass my house to go to the Cabrillo Trail loop and drop back in and do it again. So I'd mm. see them and I was fascinated with what they might be doing because they're, you know, like popping airs off everybody's landscaping and stuff. And they're joking while they're doing it. And I'm like, those dudes, whatever their secret is, I want in on it. This is cool. <laughs> and I figured out their secret because my bus route 
for junior high would go by that bike shop. So now I got to see in the bike shop oh. is where Aptos Street Barbecue is now. Okay. That was Mystery's Cyclery. And all the bikes were hanging up by their wheels on the awning. And these bikes had suspension on them, kind of like uh, my first bike that I caught air on had suspension on it. But they had front suspension also mm. with dual crowns, which looked like a dirt bike that had already been putting around on a pit bike. My dad taught me how to, me and Ty, how to ride dirt bikes. Okay. So I saw these bicycles that looked like dirt bikes, but it seemed like they didn't have the limitations of dirt bikes because to ride the dirt bike, you had to go to the dirt bike place and you needed to have a parent or somebody with a driver's license take you to the dirt bike place. So I saw these kids on these pedalable dirt bike looking things mm-hmm. and they seemingly had free reign of the town to just go ride and pop air off whatever they wanted yeah. and so once i became friends with them now i was on their little convoy riding past my parents house dropping into the woods <laughs> and where do the woods end right at the middle of aptos village where there's these jumps that i've seen anytime my parents would take me to go drop off a letter at the post office <laughs> so that's the story <laughs> yeah that's sick what was the first like real mountain bike you got then to so you could hang with the, the it gang. It was a Pacific 7500. Ugh, really? Toys R Us. <laughs> yep. Because, to me, it was the same as what they had because it had it looked the, the same. dual crown forks. Yeah. How long did yes. that last? That lasted my first two <clears throat> jumps at post office. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> what happened to it? <laughs> my dad still has the head tube, which oh, really? Intel inch and eighth to quarter inch tapered <clears throat> became a standard. We used that to install headset races. No way. Yeah. <laughs> But it's still there. It didn't last long. I landed off of what we called the double, which is the first jump you took pictures of us on, all the way to the left-hand side of the post office. So it was smaller then, but you'd come down the road, line up all the way to the left side of the the wall of lips, and you'd jump. And uh, the first couple times, or first time, you would land and roll out and celebrate. And then once the Pacific 7500 had had enough... You ground your face in the ground. Well, what happened? You look back, your bike's in two pieces. <laughs> oh, man. What'd you get next? Uh, next, I got a specialized, uh, what is it, a big hit or something? Okay. Yeah, yeah I think it was a big hit because they had like With a, a small bunch of different in the big back. heads. No, this was before that. Okay. This one was like silver, red, and black. And uh, it didn't have the monocoque. Is that how you say it? Monocoque. Can you say that on your podcast? (laughs) It wasn't the one with like the monocoque frame, which was like the the elite or like, you know, like the Palmerol frame had like that curved down tube. Yep. This one was like box. The tube and the panels kind of smashed. Yeah. yeah. But it had a Marzocchi uh, dual crown fork on it. And this one had disc brakes and stuff. And uh, yeah, I remember I saved up for the Pacific 7500. And then I knew about it because of the Toys R Us sale ad. But then the sale went away, and now it was like 100 bucks more or something like oh, that. Man. So I was like devastated. But my dad was always really good. My parents were always really good about giving us a little idea of, uh, you know, like the concept of how you acquire things, yeah. you know? So our deal was to sell mistletoe uh, in the appropriate seasons. So he would take us out to, like, say, Hollister or something, which is where the motorcycle riding area was, and we'd find trees that had mistletoe in them. No, we slash he as much as we could do, but he also being you know a fully grown man at that point, we slash he would climb up trees with a saw and cut down the mistletoe, and then we'd bundle them up with red ribbon and we'd sell them uh, the shopping center across the street from my parents' house. And then we'd start migrating down toward the Safeway shopping center. Just 
just like a lemonade stand. You had a mistletoe stand yeah. like in front of the store. Yeah. So golf balls, because that first dirt jump area was right. Also, if you went past that was a golf course. So okay. you get golf balls out of the blackberry bushes because when people would hit golf balls in the blackberry bushes, they're yeah, like, done. fuck that golf ball. Yeah. <laughs> and so we would go get the golf balls. We'd sell those. But then in, in the Christmas time, we would sell the mistletoe. But all this stuff would get split between me and Ty, all the money that we made. And then we would buy things for the bikes. But after I snapped the, the 7,500 in half, it, I think my parents were kind of like, wow, this is like a, you know, a really good thing they're into. You know, like they're focusing on this a lot. And so they helped us get better bikes, but also like all the money we would make doing these other ways of making money um, would go toward these things, right? Okay. But now they're helping us so we could get safer things that yes, ideally <laughs> wouldn't break in half. Right. Yeah. But the the... Trend of bikes breaking just kept on happening. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got a, who is your MTB, your first MTB idol, but then I want to get into Ooh, I know. just not, quickly yeah. Ellsworth and maybe some Jesme stories, but okay. Who's oh, your nice. first mountain bike idol? So that was Matt Maurer. His name is Matt Maurer. And he was one of the kids who would ride by my parents' house who I would okay. see. And uh, <clears throat> he was like, oh my God, I would see him when I'm on the bus. I'm like, what is this kid up to? I think he was also like picking up shifts at the bike shop and stuff, okay. but he would race. So he would have number plates on his bike and everything. <laughs> and so he, I think eventually, I think he probably like, you know, like, okay, right, kid, like kept me at arm's length for a little while. And uh -huh. all of a sudden he started like taking me under his wing. And I was like, that was like, I'm starstruck because this guy is now taking me on rides and stuff. <laughs> and if it weren't for that dude, I don't know. I I got better quicker because of him because we would go out on rides just the two of us and uh, just a really cool dude but also like this kind of like like mysterious kind of guy too yeah. so he had all these little spots and Nicene marks that were like his spots that he would do these like cool stunts on and I get the feeling that he would go out there by himself and do this stuff yeah but then like I was expressing interest in this stuff so now he would take me but he pushed me really hard like he would have these old growth stumps you know that had been cut down in the logging days but they would have flat tops on them so you could you get up there and like trials like you only have enough time to like put your feet on the pedal stand up and take like a little trial top and ride off these okay. things they have tranny underneath them because the you know the tree grows and the dirt has a little slant underneath them so he would sometimes show me how he rides off of them and then leave it at that and leave and other times he'd bring me to ones that i haven't seen him ride off of yet and he would Tell me to climb up and look at it, and then he would throw me my bike. Now I'm kind of no obligated way. to riding off of it, right? Yeah. So he would do that on these stumps. He would do that at the roofs to our high school once we got into high school. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure, like, I'm pretty sure he was always messing with me because I'm almost positive these are all ones that he has ridden off of before. Mm. So he knows that they work. Right, right. But he would just, as a joke, like when he would do it at the roofs at high school, it was ridiculous because he'd put me up there, throw my bike up there, and then he would just leave. <laughs> so I'm like now kind of stuck on the roof. Like he wouldn't even stay to watch you no. go off. No. He's just like, yeah, you got this. And so he'd leave. And so now I either have to like do the ultimate, um, you know, wuss move. Do the climb down of shame. Yeah, throw your bike <laughs> down and climb down. You don't want anybody to see you doing that. And so I would ride off of these things just out of necessity. But he pushed me so hard. And then we would go to races together and everything. Yeah. And, and uh, that's my first mountain bike idol for sure. Dude, that's Matt sick. Mauer. Matt Mauer. You probably saw him <clears throat> Dude, at some we, point. We owe Matt Mauer many beers. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> I owe him many beers. I got to hang out with him like when I was still living in Santa Cruz. He was living on a boat in the harbor. 
And I think mm. he's a ship captain now, but he was always really into boats. But we got to have a couple beers and stuff like that. And we were joking about that, like these stories I just told you. Yeah. He's like, quit your complaining. It seemed to work out all right for you. <laughs> <laughs> <That's sweet. laughs> do you want to go into how you got on Ellsworth? Yeah, sure. All right, let's do it. So I said that the breaking bikes thing became a bit of a pattern. Yep. So the big hit broke and then it, you know, it, it was warranted and everything. And then Mr. Ease was a Ellsworth dealer. And so I ended up on Ellsworth because that's the, the bike that he dealt. And, uh, and then those things started breaking a lot yep. and they're like, Hey man, like, this is great. Can you, are you down to like test these things for us? You know? <laughs> So I'm like, this is a dream. Like, this is amazing. They're going to send me, every time I break a bike, they're going to send me another one. And then they started sending me other models. Like, look, we haven't broken one of these yet. Ride this thing hard. So I got to ride these different models of bikes huh. from Ellsworth. And then they're like, man, you're getting a lot of photos in magazines. Thanks to Sean Spomer. <laughs> no so way. we want to put you on like a little bit of like a, you know, a media contingency program. So when you get shots in magazines and our logo shows up in in those shots then you know we'll we'll pay you a bit for that That's and sick and so that was that was how that relationship worked and man it was amazing what was going on imagine for a kid in high school that's a dream right there yeah for sure okay so then when did the the race face free ride challenge video contest was that kind of the same yeah. time yeah right around everything happened like really quick like that was all right around the same uh same time frame so my best friend all through junior high and high school jeremy who mm-hmm. you know teaming yeah. jeremy teaming he was also a killer rider we would race together and everything he moved once the this is a funny it brings everything together the neighborhood that i first caught aaron across the street from my parents house yeah. that got developed and then this kid that i kind of you know, knew a little bit because we went to school together. He moved into one of those houses. Mm. And when he moved in, he wasn't really into mountain bikes yet. And I was not really into mountain bikes yet. We kind of got into it together. Okay. And then he got into not only riding mountain bikes, but, but filming. So he got a camera, our dog got a camera and that became a thing. We're like, Oh my God, this is sick. Not only do we do these things, we're going to film what we do and then we're going to go back home and we're going to plug it into the TV and watch it. <laughs> you can actually like on the camera, play it back in slow motion. Yep. So we weren't editing yet. We were just watching our footage in slow motion and loud, like, Whoa, look at that. <laughs> and then Jeremy is like a brilliant human. He's like a professor in neuroscience or something now. Are um, you serious? Yeah. Like he Dude, went on to do all that? this crazy schooling and then teaching. He's really into like, psychology and stuff oh, I, i'm wow, probably saying cool. things wrong but yeah. it's like you know the science of the brain he uh-huh. became fascinated with to the point where he was like now teaching it in at the college level that's and stuff. awesome i like yeah insane because he got horrible grades in high school because he just didn't give a shit <laughs> but he was he was very smart so he picked up how to shoot and edit really easily he taught himself so next thing you know we were making videos we were editing them together just to watch for ourselves yeah. and then this race face ultimate free ride challenge thing happened at the perfect time because he was already good at editing. We were already collecting footage. Mm-hmm. So we just cut some footage together and submitted it. And at that point, it wasn't like you go on YouTube to find out what kids your age are doing on yeah, a bike. Totally. There was nothing to be found online, no, basically. Not at all. So we had <clears> no idea if this thing was going to get returned after they watched the first 15 seconds and go like, kid, you are not on the level. Okay. Or So wait, you, yeah. you sent him a tape? Right, DHS, was, yeah. Okay. And so this was run through pink bike and it was like a minute long or something like that yeah 60 second video you also had to do a 30 second introduction of who you are Mm. and uh 
So we shot this thing. We submitted it via snail mail on VHS tape. That's so sick. I didn't realize it was that <laughs> early. Like I thought there was some upload in your Facebook. Okay. So then uh, all of a sudden, I guess it was, was it Pink Bike that was doing it? It was, was Pink it? Bike okay. and Face, yeah. Okay, uh-huh. rad. So then you load Pink Bike one morning, and they have the, the riders that they chose for the final 16, and I was in that list. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it blew me away. I like, can't believe this. And then they go bracketed. Just like dual slum, so we understood the form, <laughs> the format, and then you go against somebody that you get paired against, and then the the public judges, and you if, if you make it out of sixteen, you go to round eight, round four, just yep. like slum. Next thing you know, I made it into the final two. I'm yeah. like, oh my god! So they're like, we'll fly you to Monterey, California, to be on stage for the you know the prize giving where uh, we announce was who it a wins. Sea otter? Is a sea otter. So yep. like, you don't need to fly me. We go there every year. <laughs> yeah. That's like, we're going like to be a half there. Hour away. It's cool. So final two was me and Matthew Hunter. Oh, it's Hunter. It wasn't. Yeah. Did Super T win the He was the year one? before. It was okay. him and Corey okay. LeClaire. Got it. Okay. All right. And, so you. And so, yes. Okay. Just, I thought it was Super T. So, okay. Good to clarify. All right. So you and Matt Hunter, final two. And I, I don't want to drill the train of this story. Because of, obviously we haven't paid it off yet, but the way I met Matt Hunter was hilarious. <laughs> so he's like this this faceless character underneath a full underneath a full face helmet who I'm like, you know, in a competition with. And one of us is going to get a two year contract with Race Face and Roach. And uh, yeah, it wasn't on, it like twenty five grand. Like the, the monetary was, value was up there. Yeah, I think it was ten thousand dollars. It got bigger later on as they continued to do okay. the competition. But it's ten thousand dollars. And when you look at that, you're like, I'm going to make ten thousand dollars. What in the world if I win this thing? But you know, it's a two year contract. At that point, I didn't have any contract, so mm-hmm. I didn't really know what a contract was. A two year contract worth ten thousand dollars, and then you know, so it's five thousand dollars a year, and you've got your first pro contract. Amazing, but. I don't know anything about Matt Hunter. All I know is like, well, this dude's video is sick. Like, I have no idea what's going to happen. This could go either way. But we're leaving the venue at Sea Otter one day because we were still going there and racing and everything. And my dad had never in his life picked up a hitchhiker before, to my knowledge. Uh I'd never seen him pick up a hitchhiker before. He pulls over for this guy who's got his thumb out. This guy hops in. And we go, hey, man, how's it going? You here for Sea Otter? Yeah, yeah, actually, I'm a part of this competition. It's like a free ride thing. And we go... You're Matt Hunter. Shut <laughs> up. No That's how I way. Met him. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm totally serious. It's insane. Why was he hitchhiking? Would they fly him out there and just leave him there? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. They didn't get him a rental car or anything. So, yeah, he's hitchhiking trying to get back to his uh, hotel. And so we met him. We had the biggest laugh ever. He's in my dad's van. It's like me and Ty and probably Jeremy or something because yeah. it's like we all traveled as a pack like Sean, Harry, Jeremy, our dog, like, uh, you know, the whole crew, Arev. And so. Whoever was in the van at that time now throw Matt Hunter into it. And so we had a good laugh. And then the next day, there we are on a stage, never spoken into like a microphone in front of a bunch of people before, yeah. except for commentating my brother's baseball games. <laughs> you know, but this is like under pressure. Brett Tippy asks you a question. You have no idea what he says. And you, I just looked at around. I was like, I don't know what you just said. You know, really? Like so you I'm just like, kind of yeah. like brain farted. You're done. Yeah. Completely starstruck by the whole situation. But they're about ready to show both of our videos and announce who wins the thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So they announced the thing. I couldn't even tell what he said, but nobody was jumping on me. They were all jumping on him. So I was like, okay, cool. I think he won. Like, congratulations. That's great. (laughs) And, and you know what, that like being a part of that was so amazing. And I'd already kind of been contacted by like Rob Salcido and Sandy Egger from Fox 
while they were going through the whole voting thing. Okay. And they're like, hey, man, um, we're all hoping that you don't win this thing because if you get second in this, we would love to swing by your door the very next day and bring you, we've got a contract written yeah, up for you. We'd love to give sick. you a contract. I was going to ask, like, did it matter that you lost? Like, <laughs> oh my God. Like, not, not... So thank you so much to Race Chase for putting on that competition. But I'm like, I'm with Fox still, man. Yeah. Like I, it, it all worked out. And I think Matt is still with Race Chase, you know, I like think so, yeah. it worked out perfect for everybody. But sure enough, Sandy shows up on my door and like, I, I owe so much to Rob Salcido because the only reason I had a relationship with Fox was because he he was like, hey, man, he came to our door one day and said, he want to like take some photos we got to shoot for our catalog? Mm-hmm. So we shot for the catalog. It was, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Simon Cudby, mm-hmm. moto photographer, came out and shot us. And I ended up getting like a two-page in the catalog for their, their current shin pads, doing a no-foot can. So like they gave me a bunch of free clothes for that and everything. Yeah. And I was always like, you know, oh, Fox is so cool. And, uh, and so Simon, uh, sorry, Sandy... Uh, came to my door, had the contract, and and that was it, man. I signed with Fox as like a 17 year old, and now I'm 32, and I've been with Fox ever since. That's pretty. So that sick. was my first like proper sponsorship contract. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah. Did <clears throat> obviously it worked out. I don't, I don't think we need to get into the details about what came next, but so you kept riding Ellsworth for a bit. Yeah, I was riding Ellsworth, and everything was going great. I'm like, this is killer i was getting tons of pictures in magazines at the time it was a really good time for free ride mountain biking i think and so there was a lot of stuff for our crew to be inspired by you know in the form of you know evolution the movie chain reaction series new world disorder all these video series that we would just like you know praise every day every moment that we're not riding we're watching these things and and so I felt like I was in a good spot. We were making our own video and stuff and I was with Ellsworth and I was going, I was just basically saying yes to every opportunity that, that came my way. And yeah, one you, yeah. you were everywhere. Yeah. I mean, just, I know I was knocking down your door. I'm like, Hey, can I come film and take pictures? And, and every single time I was like, else yes. Was, yeah. Like, great. Yeah. But there's everyone was doing that. And one of the things, one of the opportunities that popped up was to go to this little contest in the parking lot in front of uh, John Henry's, which is a bike shop in Vancouver. So I went to this competition and I went with like DeChamp and uh, <laughs> Hannah Steffens oh, and man. like like Gulovich is there and everything. I think Gulovich even let me stay at his house or something. But I, this dude who I, of course, recognize came up to me and introduced himself as Andrew Shandro. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> He's like, hey, man, like, uh, you know, whatever he said, he like my ride or something like that. Let's yeah. stay in touch. So I probably gave him my contact information or whatever. He hit me up at some point and said, like, hey, this is the way he put it was like, and I think, like, I was already riding for Manitou a little bit at yeah. the time. And he had a relationship with Manitou. So that's probably how he got my contact information. So, uh, um Joel Smith and Bill Christensen and stuff like that. He had been talking to them and, and Shandro's really good at like, you know, just like doing his research on people before he contacts them. So I think okay. he'd done his research through Manitou guys, but he hit me up one day and was like, Hey, Trek Fisher is thinking about sponsoring like a young kid for like, you know, the type of riding that you're doing. Would you be open to this? And I remember being so like, you know, uh, like that's, that feels really good, but I was scared because I'm like, well, this Ellsworth thing is working out really great. And I remember yeah. like, like Andrew, do you, th- the guy I just met who, uh, you know, I've seen in videos and I'm aware of your career. Dude, Ride <laughs> of the Hills. Wasn't he one of the first like kind of 
the mullet Rampage line. zones. Yeah, exactly. Oh, big time. Yeah. I'm like, this guy's talking to me. <laughs> like, I go, is this a good idea? I mean, I'm looking at the bikes they have, and they don't even make a bike for what I like to do. And he's like, oh, my God, kid. Okay, listen. Promise. I promise you. Trust me. This will be good. Really? They'll, they'll make you whatever bike you want, dude. Okay, because one of the notes I have, like, talking about going to Trek, that I remember thinking... I don't know how I found out about it, whatever, but like you're going to Trek. Like, I remember thinking it seemed kind of lame at the time. Yeah, I was like, like scared. I was like, what am I doing? bruiser was kind of yeah. chunky and goofy compared yeah. to like the cool dirt jump bikes at the time. Like that, their session, it was huge. Yeah. And so you kind of questioned it too, at least. Just oh, like, no, I was like, I was like, man, thanks for the opportunity, but what am I going to ride? Like, yeah. like the bruiser doesn't bar spin. It's got like a 20 and a half inch top tube, which is like, that's perfect for a BMX bike or something. You throw 26 <laughs> inch wheels in that sucker. That's landing right on your foot yeah. at the halfway point. He's like, look, this is the point is we, we want to get a young rider. We see this type of riding is, you know, it's going somewhere. There's a future in it. We want to partner with somebody who can help them design bikes for this type of riding. Mm. And, you know, so we, we did some different angles on a bruiser and like my friends at the time who I was starstruck to be able to call these people, my friends, like friends, I'm talking about like Kyle Ebbett, Aaron uh-huh. Chase, Jeff Lenoski, these guys who are the best resource ever for hardtail geometry, right? Totally. They've all got signature hardtails. Somehow they're cool enough. Like these dudes are like the most amazing, uh, you know, giant wings to be put under Mm -hmm. they helped me out they let me ride their bikes and i was able to figure out what i like what i don't like about them and actually you know start to speak the language of frame geometry and and explain i i you know still didn't really know what i'm talking about but i'm Mm -hmm. just trying to convey in numbers that i want this bike to be able to bar spin and i want to learn tail ups so there better be clearance you know interesting yeah and uh and so we did a hardtail and then and then we did a slope bike and i've got in the garage you can i'll show you after you can take a picture of it for website or whatever but i've got all my frames from 04 on like from oh, my competition really? years all, all the slope frames yeah so you yeah. can see the first slope frame and how far it came and mm. stuff like that and, and i've never really been very good at the tech stuff mm-hmm. so you know once brandon got on board then the slope bike got way better <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah andrew said trust me we'll make good bikes for you and then you know it was like slow protos hardtail protos session 77 session 10 and then you know just the session just kept you know you saw what happened with the yeah, bikes they're yeah. damn good bikes now 2018 yeah it seems like it's uh <laughs> it's worked out fairly well um all right i've got a couple of questions that all kind of like work together but you mentioned that we're, we're kind of going to jump into competition and that sort of era in your life so trek's working out starting to compete things like that are happening. And you mentioned at the beginning, which thought was interesting because it's kind of the thought I had, but you seem like you mentioned that entertainment was always more fun than the competition or the results. And so I just got written down that you were always in the mix. Like you won some events, but did you ever have that super gnarly competitive drive to be number one on the top? I think I developed it. Yeah. I think like, I I think that may not have been my initial motivation because I, my initial motivation to like do this stuff was to, I don't know, man, X Games in 1999 was a big like tug at the string that turns the light bulb on. Um, watching Freestyle Moto there, I hmm. was more enamored with the show, the spectacle than like who won. Hmm. And it, it was very inspiring that Travis Pastrana won, but it was the show that that dude put on that was the most inspiring thing. Yeah. Like, he had that that audience 
completely at the edge of their seat and he had control over the emotions of all these people and he would always do something you know new progressive and outlandish to the point where it mattered you know like the first year we went it was 99 he jumped into the bay like like that was a, that was a performance you know yeah if he got like fifth place it was still a performance that was incredibly inspiring like of course he won and that was inspiring and you know we played baseball and stuff like that so competition you want your team to win and stuff like that that's cool but in baseball i was always more excited if i got a diving catch you know hmm. and the crowd went like ah you know <laughs> like the the one of the, still one of the most exciting things i've ever experienced was my pitcher in pony league had a no hitter going and I was playing center field and I had this crazy diving catch and saved his no hitter, you know? And like <laughs> the circumstance of that was such that like I was willing to, you know, dive straight into the fence if I needed to, I'll do whatever it took to catch that ball. Because like the story that led up to that moment is like that dude needs to catch that ball. Right. Right. And I could feel what it must be like to be in the stands. And I don't care if like I had to like grab my seat and do an Indian air and look at the crowd or outstretch my left arm and catch that ball. It was like, these people understand why this ball needs to be caught right now, and I mm. want to be the one to catch that ball. Okay. You know? So I always kind of took that into competition, and it was more about like knowing what other people had in their bag and coming up with something that could beat it because that would be a cool story. Mm. You know, it was less about I want to win that trophy, I want to win that money. I want to be a part of this show in some capacity. If I do something really sick and I don't land my run, but that thing is memorable from that event on that day, I'm... I'm pretty content. Okay. That's how I went through my whole like competitive career. Yeah. Was there any time where it was like, Hey, you need to win more or you need to get different results. Cause it seemed like you've always been in the coverage, the limelight kind of regardless of results. But like, did anyone put pressure on you to, to I think Shandra really helped me with all that stuff because he always, you know, would want me to win for sure. Mm -hmm. And like be inspirational with his words and say like, look, dude, like if you do this, you could win. And it's not like, no man, I think I'm going to do that. You know? But at the end of the day, he's always, he'd give you advice and you would just kind of stick to your plan. Yeah. Like I would always have a plan and it was different then than it is now. Like it's, it's, uh, it's cool to see riders having a coach and stuff like that. I feel like I could have used more of that back then, but he was definitely the one guy where if I could, you know, have a conversation with him while I'm competing and, and like, my dad too and my brother also like everybody's watching everything and when you're practicing sometimes you don't see everything that everybody else does and mm. so you're like hey man that dude's doing this and like okay cool i was wondering if i should do this which is a little riskier but knowing that that person's doing that i will do that and and but he but shandra would always say like you know he would say little things like dude like you know he would say things like you're an entertainer you know you you're, you're a competitor on this you could you could win this event but you're also an entertainer and like in what context i'm not really sure but that always really stuck with me and i'm like mm. man that's right because because that's the way i that's the reason why i feel like i'm doing it mm. and like him being you know the dude for my biggest sponsor kind of always being happy with if i did the cool thing mm -hmm. you know and my brother would always say like hey man do cool shit you know instead <laughs> of like win that shit you know it's like yeah. do cool shit and i feel like I don't know if people could tell what my motivation was for the event or if, like that was just, you know, words of advice or words of uh, encouragement that just were on the tip of the tongue. But, but I, you know, I never had anybody like incredibly pissed if I didn't win something, you know, yeah. like I have experienced being incredibly pissed if I didn't win something and I didn't like that feeling, you know, <laughs> and then I had to check myself. I definitely went through roller coasters when I was competing going like, whoa, man. 
wait, why are you doing this? Like, mm. you're pissed right now because you didn't win. Is that the reason why you started doing this? Like, probably not. Like, do something cool. Let's do something cool that's memorable. Mm. Figure out what's like the thing that day and do it. And, uh, you know, some of those things work out and some of them don't. I remember like feeling really competitive one day when it was like Crankworx Colorado 07 and Brandon put down a good run first run. And I was like, whoa, the thing that I was going to plan for first run right now doesn't really matter, you know? Really? Because his run was His so run was good. so good. Yeah. I'm like that. Did I say, what year did I say? 2010 is oh, what so, I meant to say. Okay. Yeah. So I remember going like, wow, the thing that I'm going to do right now, like I don't, I obviously would like to win, so I want to do something that could win, but it's more, I don't want to do something that makes everybody go, all right, next. You know, so yeah. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to the thing that matters now, and I'm going to front flip off that whale tail, mm-hmm. you know, and and it was a competitive drive, but it was also like, I want to do something that matters right now, and this is the chance to do it. I can't leave it for second run and get something safe in the back because he's already up the ante, and so that was when I broke my femur. You know, and then you start, then when you have like your first like real big injury, mm-hmm. you start going like, whoa, man, like I realize that I will do anything for those two reasons, like to be competitive, but that's in the backseat to mattering on that day. And, uh, and then, yeah, from that point on, I still did a lot of stuff and I still got hurt a lot, but I think that was a realization of like, that mindset that I was capable of putting myself in were accepting any and all consequences mm-hmm. because I wanted to like do something that mattered that day, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, oh, wow, there's consequences for this is, is that still around or are you just kind of chilled out now? Like you've got other priorities. I'm definitely not chilled out now. I'm definitely not chilled out. I yeah. have to like analyze what, you know, like if I'm not like creating something, I'm like a hundred percent miserable. And if I'm not like putting myself on the spot for something, I'm like a hundred percent miserable. Like mm. I need that, like at least on the horizon, like have some goal that I want to do or some situation where I'm going to be on the spot. Cause those are the things that I enjoyed from competition. Okay. And if I don't have any outlet for those things right now, like there's a lot of really great things in life right now, like married kids, it's killer, but I, I don't miss competition, but I miss those feelings that were the reasons why I liked competitions and there's other ways to get those feelings. And so I seek those out and they're, they're further between right now. And, and what are they? I was going to wait till later, but what are they like? What? Yeah. So like my first couple years that I wasn't competing, I had this whole hit list of all these, like, you know, tricks I wanted to do on these certain features out in Utah, for example, or just tricks that I wanted to do or something. And I had fallen into the rut of like, you know, slope style continued to evolve and it changed a little bit also, you know, it went in a way that was really good for the public to just really grasp onto it and fit a formula of like, oh, this is just like all these other sports that I watch, you know, where these people are really tight and, and this competition is really close and the guy who, you know, uh, is flawless is going to win. And the guy who squeezes that extra rotation is going to win. And, and I love it. You can tell I love it. I still go and commentate these events, but that didn't really fit me as much anymore. And so I was falling into this rut of training for these tricks that were tricks that other people were doing just because I wanted to be on the level, you know, mm, okay. like, Oh, if I'm going to pe- compete this season, all the courses have the same hits on them. I'm not going to be able to, you know, rely on finding something and doing something on it. that Other people aren't doing, which was really, the most exciting thing about competing for me is like, 
you know, people used to be on the lift during Joyride or it was just slope style Whistler week and going like, oh my God, who's going to hit that thing? Or is somebody going to do a trick on that thing? And that was a really exciting buzz of slope style. And like, oh, that dude's riding a hardtail. That dude's riding a mid-trial. That dude's riding a downhill bike. And there's like this massive variety of things that people are doing. <laughs> yeah. And you could just be your own rider and, and then go do your own thing. And sometimes that would be enough for a podium. And slope style kind of transformed into this thing where it's everybody's riding the same course. Everybody has these features at home that, that are the same as the course, mm-hmm. which are these things that we all wanted. So we knew what to train for because showing up to a contest and having no idea what the features are going to be is daunting, but it was also pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, I'm like, all right, I'm training to do the same tricks that everybody else are doing and just hope that I land it s- s- smoother than everybody or as smooth as everybody and yeah. hopefully fall somewhere in those rankings. And so once I stopped competing, I'm like, all right, I'm going to take these tricks and these features that I know I have in the back of my mind scattered throughout Utah, et cetera. And I'm just going to like train for that, you okay. know, like whether that's, if that's like doing a flip whip on a downhill bike with a single crown on like a cool fadeaway in Utah, instead of trying to get a triple truck, I'm going to put a single crown on my downhill bike. And I'm going to go to that same mulch jump and I'm just going to work on flip whip on my downhill bike hmm. and go out to this thing. And the the excitement I would get and the feeling of accomplishment I would get from doing that, it was way more than if I saw my slope style run at that point in time, where, <laughs> whether that's where slope style was at or that's where I was at, that's the way I felt. So I pursued those challenges just in a different direction. Okay. Yeah. And what, what is it now that, totally that dude. kind of <laughs> breaks the mold for you? Just you, gets you psyched. You see me in a sling right <laughs> now in my entire like bike riding life, uh, getting hurt and having time off the bike has always signaled some sort of like, you know, period of reflection and, you know, analyzing of what's next. And so basically I've got this notepad in my phone, mm-hmm. <laughs> just a bunch of shit that I want to do. Mm-hmm. And it's not only just like it was my first year not competing where that stuff was that trick off of that jump, you know, it's just like, ideas like creative ideas i want to do and they they like spread the gamut between like similar things to back then like this trick on that jump or just this idea for this video i want to do Hmm. or this concept for like like i've gotten into doing the commentating i've gotten into like hosting a tv show and stuff and i've learned a ton through that but there's always like a ton of uh restrictions on what you can do because of who's paying for it okay or what the purpose of it is. And so I want to I want to continue pushing myself as a bike rider and doing things that I feel matter. Like I have a whole list of things that I want to do. And I have an outlet for that right now because TGR is doing a film. And uh, the concept of the film is killer. And it's like I get to have like this role in the film where I get to have a platform to go do these things and not have to like make a bunch of emails and phone calls and try to find somebody to pay the filmer for it, you know? Okay, yep. So that's my outlet right now for those like physical challenges I want to do on a bike. Hmm. But then I want to just, I want to pay for all the shit I want to film on a, like, and I just want to do it on a YouTube channel and like, to be the producer. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. And I want to like, some of the stuff will be me. Like some of the stuff will be like, like I want to do this because I want to tell this story in the right way. And I want it to be like, you know, not micromanaged and some stuff will be like funny, but, but through like commentating and doing that McCall meat show and then doing locals on outside, like I really enjoy telling other people's stories. So I just want to have my own platform to tell other people's stories in a cool way and, and, you know, have it be stories, but also have it be action and have nobody telling me how it has to be. Hmm. And, uh, I'm just, 
I, I don't want it to be funded by somebody who has a marketing initiative. So I'm, I'm going to spend some money filming some shit and put that's it up and, and hope that people like it. But if they don't, that's okay. Cause I just have shit. I want to get off my chest. Yeah. I, you know? So, <laughs> so yeah, that sounds that's super cool. <laughs> I don't want you to give it all away, but I want to hear about it all. <laughs> yeah. I could pull out my notepad. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> we'll read every note out loud. Yeah. All right. Kind of going back a little bit. <clears throat> And this is more just personally, I want to hear about your insight with this, but there's sort of like the Trek trifecta, All right, Like Shandrew got, Shandrew got you on and then you're doing your thing. You're getting the bikes developed, getting some pub. And then I remember at the Cowan jam and like maybe Oh five or Oh six, I forget the year, but then Seminuk showed up like, dude, there's this little Seminuk guy. And he seemed like a clone of you back then. Do you remember that at all? Oh, like, yeah. Kind of do the sure. same tricks. All right. And so Seminux gets on and then Reader comes along and he seemed like he's trying to be like a clone of Seminux. Like, what's that whole progression about? Like, talk, what do you think about all that? Is yeah. that true? No, that's that a good accurate? topic, man. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember thinking, like, everyone's like, who's this Seminux kid? Like, he's, is he trying to be Cam? Like, he's doing Superman Sea Crabs. Bike looks the same. Like, what's going on? It's so funny because you're like one like person who will remember that because that's so long ago and so much stuff has happened between now and then that, like, that's not something that a lot of people remember. And, and I'm, I say this with all respect because of the history and just kind of everything that chain of riders has produced. Yeah. But I remember at the time kind of being like, Who's this dude? <laughs> no, <laughs> there's good juicy bits for this for sure. I, I know. Where, okay. So when I first met Brandon, I was at the Whistler Dirt Jumps and it was 05. Mm-hmm. So that timeline you just threw out there was exactly on point. And I went up there because Tom Pro, Alex Pro's dad, who was at the time the bike park manager at Whistler, he called me up and he's like, Cam, the Red Bull elevation jumps are still here, but we're going to have to tear them down pretty soon. This was like fall, like end of the season. He's like, you should really come up here and ride these things before we tear them down. I'm like, that's amazing. He's like, you can stay at our house. Come up. So I flew up and had a blast on those things. Hmm. But while I was up there for that, I'm riding the the dirt jumps in Whistler. And there's this kid. He's riding so well. And he's very young. Um, he was probably 14 or something. If this is 05, I was 19. So we could fact check this. Hopefully the numbers come out, but these are just numbers I think <laughs> yep. I remember. And the thing that struck me by this kid um, were two things. Something that he said in the lineup at the roll-in and then the way he was riding. And I'll mm. talk about the way he was riding first. Uh, he had this insane precision, right? Like mm. He was doing all these tricks that a lot of other people were doing, but his feet went right back to the pedals. And he was linking all these tricks together hmm. and he's, he's riding all the lines and everything just seemed to work. Like, did he, was he noticeably boosting higher already than all these kids? Not really. Was he noticeably it, like had a more natural style than all these other kids? Not really. But it was just this like calm demeanor he had and his ability to link everything together. And hmm. I was like, man, this kid's like dialed. And then I'm sitting in the lineup and I... I hear him saying something about how he's going to ride the slope style next year. And, and this may be like me mixing two stories. This may be him like in the summer. And then I put it together. This is the same kid. But I remember hearing this little voice and looking back and seeing this little long haired kid and the confidence, like at that point to get invited to the slope style is pretty hard. And he's like, Oh no, I'm going to ride the slope style this year. Uh-huh. And I remember going, oh my 
gosh, is this little kid like just trying to impress people by saying this? And then I watched him <laughs> drop in and I was like, wow, this kid like may not be ready for slope style this year, but he's really good. Hmm. And so I think that's what it was. I first became aware of him that summer. And then now I spent more time with him when I went back up there to ride those elevation jumps. Okay. So the elevation jumps, I realized he's good friends with Alex, who I already knew a little bit because of Tom, Alex Pro. And so I'm just riding with those two kids and riding the elevation jumps. And we were riding the mountain and stuff like that. And I'm like, this kid's really cool. Like we're hanging out, we're riding, we're hanging out back at Alex's house. And we heard that they just put this new container up on like freight train area, right? And it's got a fresh landing on it. So we all went up there and we learned our first three drops on this thing. So me, Alex, and Brandon all learned our first three drops at the same time. And so at this point, I'm like, I'm like, this little kid is badass and and I I support this, you know, a hundred percent. And then I find out (laughs) that Shando's already kinda like got his eye on him. He wants Mm. to get him a get him a hardtail frame and stuff like that. So that's where that happened. And, uh, you know, we were like, you know, hitting it off pretty, pretty well. I'm the older guy. He's the younger guy and things are cool. And then, you know, I watched this dynamic years later develop between Brett and Brandon. And I had experiences to where I was like, oh, I kind of understand what's going on here. Hmm. Because there was a period of time where all of a sudden Brandon, this cool young kid who's on Trek, is now showing up to the, to the contest. And I'm like, oh my God, this kid might beat me today. You know, yeah, yeah. this is weird to think because it's like, of course, Brandon, he's going to beat everybody. But at that point, it's like, he's having a hard time getting invites because people don't believe that he's ready yet. Like we're talking like Cash Kai 07. He's, yeah. <laughs> he comes to the first one and then he doesn't get an invite back to the, to the rest of them. So they freaking send him packing back to Canada. He Did he even not get... perform that one or something? No, he rode well, but for whatever reason, he had only give, was given an invite for that one. Okay. It was something like that, right? Sure. And they didn't go like, oh, yeah, you rode well, so you get to stay here. He had to leave. Huh. And at contests, he's probably not getting judged as high as he should because he doesn't have a name for himself yet, right? And you know things keep progressing. And then all of a sudden, there's one year where it's like, oh, he's the man, you know, you're like, wow, holy cow. So now he's the man. Now the contest that I used to show up at being like, you know, I'm pretty damn sure I'm going to win this thing. And I got some confidence because I've won some stuff. I'm like, this kid is now going to win this. And Mm. that is where I kind of started to get a little bit more competitive for my own good. And, and like I I referenced earlier where I've had times where I got too competitive and went, wow, is this really why I'm doing this? Mm. And so I remember being a bit standoffish toward Brandon for a while and I remember he called me up one time. We were shooting for New World. And he's like, can I ride that river gap that Big Red Ted is building that you're going to shoot for New World? Westerland had organized this canyon gap. Me and Ted had been on Utah trips together. And we'd been jumping all these canyons. So he kind of knew what I liked. He's like, I found this thing. I'm going to see if D's down to pay for the build. I'm going to build this thing. And now Brandon, the kid who's like, you know, winning all the contests. And I'm like, now I'm kind of like, oh man, I got to watch myself. You know, <laughs> he wants to ride this thing that I'm psyched on for my new world part. He'd already beat me all season, at all these contests. Yeah. And now the one thing I have to focus on is, you know, doing unique stuff for my video part. He wants to come ride one of the coolest hits I have for it. And I remember being like, no, sorry, you can't do it. Yeah. And shutting him down and like feeling Did, pretty bad about it. You, you know? felt bad saying no. Yeah. But did you think it was weird? He asked like, kind of like, but do, up until that point, we had like a really cool relationship to where, okay. Where, like, you know, I was cool with it. I, re- I was loving watching him come up through the ranks. And I always care more about the, the future of slope style than where I sit in it. Hmm. And so I'm looking at him going, this is great for the sport. This kid is going to be the face of the sport. But then, against my better judgment, like, 
I can't help it, but all of a sudden I started to get all competitive about it, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I did feel bad about shutting him down on hitting that gap because I'm like, wow, like, what am I becoming now? I'm becoming this guy who's selfish and I'm not going to let him ride it. So I remember feeling bad about it. Mm. And, you know, like, yeah, maybe our friendship is going to be different now because I'm being all like holding him at arm's length type of thing now. I mean, fast forward, like, everything was fine, everything worked out. I was just going through a period of time where uh, I wanted to continue having a good chance at winning all these competitions sure. and having like an entertaining video part. And I'm thinking, well, this kid's going to take the cake hmm. and, you know, you know, reflect on it now. And I go, that's just insecurity and yeah. it's all good for like, for the, the, the better, um, the betterment of the sport, he was doing all the right things. Like that kid in so many different ways has done the right thing for the sport. And it's, you know, respected at the level it's respected in large part, by the way, he's, for formulated his career and the decisions he's made because he's good at, at that. He's good at looking to the future and making the, the right steps and stuff. And so I'm glad we're cool now, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he would invite me out when he had his life behind bars and we would shoot episodes together. He invited me and zinc out to do his, uh, you know, uh, what was that rad company, that film that yeah. he did with free ride. That was so rad. Yep. Um, so, and like now, like I could, you know, Everything, there's not that weirdness because we're not like, we're doing different things, you sure. know? But then when Brett came on board, uh, Brandon was very supportive of him, of him coming on board, like to the point where I think he's like, look, Shandro, like unequivocally, this is the next guy, you know, hmm. like I can tell. And it's because he's looking over his shoulder. Yeah. He sees that the next guy is, is making himself known. And yeah. it's not obvious to everybody yet, but he does the right thing for the betterment of the sport i don't know if betterment is a word i've used it twice <laughs> it works for me I but like he it. tips off shander he's like look this is the guy right mm. and so now brett's a c3 guy and he's staying at my house in aptos and uh and i can tell that the arm's length thing is happening you know huh. because brett's getting too close and he's he's you know nipping at the heels and brandon is doing to brett what i found myself doing to brandon yeah. when the shoes were on the other feet and i'm like oh man this is you know, this is going to be tough. I kind of remember this. And, and boy, did it ever light a fire under Brett to just, you know, to just carve his own path and, and like <laughs> slay it. And, uh, did you ever talk to Brandon about it thinking like, Hey, I remember going through this with you or were you just, kinda... I don't think so, man. Yeah. I mean, like we would do like not bad, uh, you know, like the anthill series, not bad and not too bad and stuff. And, uh, and I could just feel you know, sense the stuff because they're competing with each other for shots and, and maybe it's Brett competing more with Brandon and, and, but Brandon trying to pretend like he's not, you know, like it's his game and yeah. stuff like that, that I could like kind of understand. But regardless, I mean, you look at Brett now and he's settled into his, his, you know, his zone and he is who he is in his own right. And, uh, and I think, I hope it's run his, its course, you know, I mean, Brett has won Joyride. He's won Rampage now, and mm -hmm. he's you know done his own films. And I feel like I feel bad for Brett anytime there's people who just like constantly compare him to Brandon yeah. because I think that's become such a goal for him is to just do his own thing. And uh, and I know it's it's probably the case of being inspired by similar things. And and you know it's it's always gonna from the outside look like you know oh this dude's copying this because of that reason, but. But like, I hope I'm not saying too much, but, but I know Brett has been like, look, I'm just going to stop following Brandon on social media. So I am completely 
free of any influence and people, you know, can't say that because the truth of the matter is I'm getting coming up with my own ideas. And yeah. if it happens to be the same as his ideas, it's a coincidence, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's the, the case or not, I have no idea, but I respect his ability to look around and realize that he wants to do his own thing. Yeah. And he kind of assesses what's going on. So yeah. 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 Huh. Interesting. Is there a, is there another kid coming up for Trek? Who's going to be the fourth in line? <laughs> Man. That's a good question, huh? What? Yeah, like, dude, what's the future of slope style? It's freaking like gnarly tech, like almost gymnastic, like, and what's the future of it? And how does a kid see it and want to get into it? It's almost so nuts now that it's not even approachable. It seems like, like I back re- when you guys were in, it's like okay, threes, flips, tail whips, like maybe a double something here or there. And it kind of seemed attainable for, you know, a random kid. But now it's like, dude, what Nikolai does and quad stuff here and there. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm always worried that it looks a little unattainable. You know, I remember when I was riding bikes, I remember going, well, mountain bikes is definitely the better path for me because I was watching BMX dirt and going, I'm never going to be able to do a three whip. Like, of course, I would be able to do a three whip eventually. But in my mind right there, that just looked like something that was too far out of grasp and so i gravitated towards slope style and it could go both ways people could be uh deterred by the level you have to be on to even you know like qualify for a bronze event or something you know or it could inspire because kids watch stuff and the established norm is so much higher than it was before they go you know all right just to even be a blip on the radar i have to learn this trick right now and you watch kids at a younger age be so much better now than they were because of the stuff they watch. And I honestly worry a little bit about the, the future of slope style, because is it going to get to the point where like every year I'm surprised we're not there yet because the tricks continue to carry the entertainment value of the sport. But will we get to a point where people who don't live and breathe it, watch it and go, I can't even tell what made that run better than the other run. Totally. Like, I have no idea. Dude, the fact you guys can call like opposite and switch stuff, like I can't even follow it anymore. Yeah. And I still love it. Yeah. I mean, it's going to get harder and harder if tricks are the only thing carrying it. Because one thing that really did set slope style apart at the beginning is the variety and the features. Mm. And it would be really cool. I've been saying this for years and then another season will go by and it'll be so entertaining that you go, all right, well, I was wrong. And it's maybe that's just not the time yet. Yeah. But I do think there's going to come a time where, where all the one-upsmanship of adding a rotation to this trick and that trick will look all the same to the casual observer. And to maintain the same level of excitement and entertainment value, you're going to have to put some options on the courses. Hmm. And I mean, slope style is in a in a pretty lucky position of being able to look at similar sports and, and how their growing pains have gone. Like look at ski slope style and snowboard slope style. If you look at even the Olympic courses, there's all kinds of crazy cool options. Mm-hmm. And for myself as a viewer, that helps you yeah. go like, Oh, that dude did a method on that transfer. And that mattered because nobody else is hitting that transfer. Maybe it's some sort of crazy pocket or something like that. But I like to look forward to a future of slope style where you still have these insane tricks that are going down. Like Nikolai is doing such 
a ridiculous job of bringing more and more tricks every year Dude. and like Brett doing flip whips off of flat drops and stuff like that. So it's still working, you mm-hmm. know, like I would be completely wrong if I said this isn't progressing right now and we need to change something because that's false. But I've always thought that there will come a time to where you do need to put some new stuff on the courses so that maybe instead of backflip tailping off of the flat drop being the most exciting thing of the event, because it happened six years ago, it'll be somebody just straight up like Morgan waiting a transfer and downside tailping <laughs> it or something yeah, like that, you know, totally. like, like there's entertainment value in that and entertainment value that is also more mountain bike, you know, yep. like you go out mountain biking with your friends, the exciting person to ride with is the person who our dogs off the side and transfer something that nobody else thought about for sure. And so I think there will be a time where, and maybe it's just a one-off event as an experiment for somebody to do at some Mm. point, you know, like now would be a cool event for an experiment. You wouldn't want to experiment with a crankwork stop, right? There's too much on the line. There's overall points and stuff. And that is like the pinnacle level of the, of the sport. So you don't really want to use that as the platform for experimenting, but maybe a one-off event somewhere where they bring it back to a course where, where people are like, oh, yeah, that's like so-and-so's thing that they're doing. That's like crazy. You mm-hmm. know, I better find something that's as crazy as that. So you look around on the course to find it and then tap into your bag of tricks and decide what feature to sprinkle that onto, you know? Yeah, for sure. Is Do you think there can be like an Aptos kind of crew vibe anymore or does social media prevent that from happening? You guys are just focused on digging in the dirt and – you weren't in tune with what was going on everywhere else. Well, I mean, you, you were as best you could, but it wasn't at your fingertips 24-7. Having blinders on is an amazing <clears throat> thing. It's it's like, it's perfect environment to to have confidence, to grow your skill set, to, to ride as a crew, to create something that you feel matters and is purely yours. Social media has its positive attributes, but it was glorious to be able to compare yourself against nobody outside your town. You shouldn't feel the need to compare yourself. You know, everybody falls into it. Like, I know I fell into it. I'd be like, ooh, Andy Watts has bigger extension on his Superman C crabs than me. Like, (laughs) Uh I better push myself. But that's that's positive. You know, you're like, maybe I shouldn't be comparing myself, but I'm going to make myself better because I want to do this trick the best out of everybody in my town. Mm. But when you have the entire world to compare yourself against, that's too big of a task to bite off. Demoralizing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is it possible to have what you guys had anymore? Like, no, like the La Palma crew seems like they're doing it. Is it La Palma? I'm like some crusty old dude doesn't know what's going on, but Aptos La Palma. (laughs) (laughs) No, like, is it not La Palma? Like we're, no, it's La Palma. Yeah. I was just kidding. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah, Aptos. Aptos and La Palma. (laughs) No, there's still crews, man. And, I I definitely am more of an optimist than a pessimist, so I can identify the fact that social media has its positive attributes, but it also has its negative attributes. And I do think it's important to to always just look at yourself and your crew and just figure out if you're all riding for the right reasons, you know? Mm-hmm. Because you could ride to be the best in the world, but, that, but, but maybe if you want to ride to enjoy it, that might be a little bit more rewarding. And, and set your own goals because they're exactly that rather than, you know, goals that are based on what other people are doing. And so I definitely think it's possible. 
Um, it's probably not possible in Aptos at this current moment, but, but I, I like to think that, that all the riding that goes on now with trail bikes being better, the crews maybe are like covering more ground and finding their hits, you know, in the woods or something or in the Mm -hmm. desert. Like what's really inspiring to me is somebody like, uh, Jackson Riddle. Like when you ask that question, that's the first thing that I'm thinking is like that kid lives out. Are you familiar with that kid? Mm -mm. So he lives out in like the desert. He lives out in Virgin, Mm -hmm. whether he lives in St. George or Hurricane or whatever. But those dudes seem to have that right type of scene. They're out there building, riding every day. And he's, he's doing it right. It seems like he's on social media and he's posting his stuff, but he's not couch locked to social media, watching what everybody else is doing. He's out there building, he's showing the world pictures of his lines and he's out there dropping lines. He's waking up early and he's, he's, he's getting better every single day. Like go on and watch that kid's Instagram page because that, that like makes me so excited for the future of mountain biking because it's, it's free ride, it's dirt jump, it's like trail, it's exploring. And to me, that was what the Aptos scene was built off of. Sure, the the epicenter of it all was the post office jumps, but that was just one piece of what our whole scene was all about. It was all about mm-hmm. riding icing marks and like, you know, going to high school and climbing up on the roofs and riding <laughs> off of them. Like it was free ride, it was trail, but it was also dirt jump. The dirt jump is the thing that got the most publicity because it's easiest for somebody to park at the post office and shoot photos of it sure but i think a scene like that for it to blossom it just takes kids who are doing it for the right reasons and these days maybe they're spending just as much if not more time on their trail bikes and and they're going out and they're riding terrain and they're pushing themselves and and just go watch jackson riddle's instagram page he's 16 and that'll that'll give you a lot of uh hope for the future of like our mountain bike youth all right sick all right i'm gonna bring it back to downer old dude talk but oh perfect (laughs) (laughs) do public bike parks take away from like what you guys had like half it seems like half of the if not more of the specialness of what you guys had was that you built it all you dug it like it was with permission most of the time like now it's like oh hey timmy it's all built go do what you're gonna do that's it like you had a different connection to what you were riding do you think bike parks take away from that when you were asking me when you asked me that last question this was one of the topics of swirling around my head and and i didn't know how to you know jumble it up into words but that is it's like a full-on double-edged sword because that is one of the things that you really want to push for because in some way it's similar to to like what i grew up with which was a public bike park but is under a completely opposite set of circumstances. So, I mean, we're getting a bike park here in Bend that's like that, you know? It's it's designed on paper and it's going to be put in place and it's going to be great. But I do worry that you you lose grasp of that most important element that our post office scene was built on, which is having a vested interest in what you ride. You yeah. build it, you care about it. And I think some of the glory days of post office, I don't think, I know the glory days of post office were when our jumps were the shittiest. Hmm. Those, are, those are the fondest memories I have because we rode more than we dug hmm. and, and any idea we had, we could just pick up a tool and make it happen. And we would finish things in one day and we wouldn't make them perfect before we rode them. And that was what 
sparked the progression at the rate it existed on mm-hmm. was because we were constantly changing what we were riding. And so as much as I support until I'm blue in the face public bike parks because it's great for families, it's great for all the kids to have a place to go ride after school, it lacks that element that I think was the most important thing. Kids need to still have the freedom to create what they ride. Yeah, and it's like an intimacy with what they're riding because they made it, they screwed up, they fixed it, they learned why. Exactly. When post office was done, there was this crazy thing that became that kind of bared its head like the older generation who grew up at post office building jumps and riding shitty jumps we just kind of assumed that the younger kids who showed up later kind of experienced that same transformation but once the jumps were done the younger kids who were so good because they grew up on those jumps being established there's like a lot of woods you know Mm -hmm. and you can just go out and start building something if you just you want to just be like diy i don't care i'm gonna go make this happen i'm gonna go catch some air but our dog was like the kids don't know how to stack something all they knew how to do is like reface something the the digging only digging they learned is to maintain shape it which is rad (laughs) but he's like yeah they started scraping the top layer off the ground to make it no you stab the thing in the dirt you put your foot down on the (laughs) shovel and you dig up a big chunk and you just stack by stack and if you've never done that before you're like oh this is gonna take forever (laughs) oh no (laughs) huh interesting yeah, it'll, it'll be curious to see how all that shakes out, but I think it's fun to talk about. Yeah, I know. Yeah, just getting old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so much, dude. Want to talk about announcing and all that stuff? Sure. Commentating. Did you ever want to do that? Like, Absolutely. Did you really? I yeah. always wanted to do it. Okay. When- I always knew that I wanted to do that when I was done competing. Um. I, I did used to commentate my brother's baseball games. Yeah, you said that. Like, you were actually on a mic. Yeah. Like, through the loudspeaker. Yeah. And uh, I loved it. And uh, I guess that's my first experience doing that. And I can't shut up. I don't know if you've noticed. But, like, if I'm watching... We're at four hours right now. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm watching an uh, action sports event or, like, a normal sporting event or anything... Like, you don't want to be sitting in the same room as me because I'm commentating it anyways, and I can't shut up. Everybody's like, okay, we get it, you know? And so if I am naturally going to be doing that anyways, I might as well, like, be the one that's coming through the speakers, Dude. you know? Like, if I can get the job, Yeah, you know? for sure. So, so um, I remember Shandra also being super supportive of this, like, long before I ever, decide, I ever decided to stop competing and... and you know, send some emails and phone calls and see if I could get that job. Remember him always being like, dude, you know, like when you do stop competing, you should get that job for, for commentating the events, Hmm. like try to get that job. Like you should do that. And, uh, I don't know if he already knew that that's what I wanted to do, but that dude in so many ways is always so supportive of like, it's not probably what you think you're like, Oh, he's probably always telling you to win and this and that. Like Mm -hmm. he's telling me things that he's like identifying strengths and being like, pursue those strengths, you know, like, you're competing. That's great. You know, do that. But we also have all these other guys who are competing and they're doing well. So, you know, if there's other things that you want to do, go do that. Mm. And, and, uh, so I had in the back of my mind, back of my mind that that's what I wanted to do. So when I did make the decision to stop competing, I had already a handful of times, um, done some like sideline reporting or like finish corral interviews because I'd been to events that I was supposed to compete in, but I had, you know, say injured myself in practice or showed up injured or something, hoping that I could magically feel better and ride. 
And uh, so I developed a relationship with the crew at Boombox. Like I met TJ Walker, who owns Boombox. They do all the broadcasts for the Crankworks series. Um, and I had met people who work at Boombox. And so I, and I knew Darren Kinnaird. I already had some people to contact sure. to say like, and what I did, I remember like exactly where I was sitting, writing this email and everything. And I was just like, hey, um, I'm not going to compete next year. I would love to be involved with the production side if there's any space you guys have because there's already people doing everything, right? right? So I'm like, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, I would make coffee for it, you know? Like, yeah. if it's finish line corral interviews, if it's not, if it's like research, you know, I'll do whatever. I want to be a part of that team. Hmm. And so they gave me a spot and I got to do the, you know, the, the sport analyst role that okay. first year. And I'm like, Oh my God, I love this. But I was definitely nervous going in. I'm like, what if I suck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like what was the hardest part to, uh, to get that rolling? Cause it's like, you've got someone talking in your ear, right? You've got was, to, you, yeah, you speak well on the fly. Like that doesn't seem like an issue at all. That's probably the hardest part is just, uh, understanding the, the slang and the, the, the flow of the show, how things are going to go, establishing the roles and stuff like that, and uh, being able to think like four steps ahead, right? Because okay. if you if you have like this um, this the next four things that you have to do, you're in the middle of the second thing and you forget the fourth thing, you're totally screwed, right? <laughs> yeah. So figuring out how many notes is too many notes. And, uh, sometimes no notes is the best, hmm. but it depends on what role you're doing. If you're doing the sport analyst, I feel like, like filling your brain before you show up is the best. But if you're doing the host role, then notes are your best friend. Hmm. And, and then also like, I've never been able to talk on the phone. If I was talking on the phone to you right now and my wife said, Hey, can you take out the garbage afterwards? Like garbage, I probably tell you garbage, right? So that was a part that I really had to learn. Interesting is to just be like, okay, there's a difference. You got to separate what's coming in and what's going out, and and make sure you absorb what came in because that's probably the fourth thing that you have to do. Okay, you know. So that was the hardest part. But once I figured it out, it was just like learning anything. It was like learning a trick. You couldn't do it in a swimming pool or a foam pit. Mm -hmm. But the only way to learn is doing it. Yeah. yeah. Did you have any coaches or anything? I had a lot of uh, emails saying that that was going to happen, but it never actually happened. Really? Like, hey, so we've lined up this coach, this teacher. We're going to send you to this place. We're going to do this before we start. Cool. All right. What's your schedule? Here's my schedule. Ooh, that's going to be tough. You know, so like <laughs> um, people with Boombox, people with Red Bull, et cetera, had lined up all these amazing opportunities to go get, to get um, coached and taught how to do it, but they never panned out, huh. you know? Yeah. So I feel like I'll still take it if I ever, you know, if I was going to say, do you feel like there's anything you you're still unsure about with it or no, it... but you can always learn more, For you sure. know, you can always be better. And that's the thing I enjoy about it is like things that I loved about competing mountain biking are like being under pressure, three, two, one, go, don't mess up because you only have one chance. That's similar to competition. I love that feeling. Yeah. And, and if you mess up, in the commentary booth, you don't break a bone or you're not bleeding internally. You just go, Oh, darn it. You know, <laughs> I'll get them next time. And, uh, and then also constantly learning. That's the thing with mountain biking is where you're always trying to make yourself better. You never, you never want to plateau. And so that's the same thing with hosting or commentating is just like learning something new every time and learning people and how they do it and taking yeah. something that they've learned and applying it to what you're doing. Would you want to do World Cups? 
Do you follow that at all? I, I watch all the World Cups. Yeah. 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 Would you ever want to do that? Um, uh, man, that's so established for, uh, you know, they have their people. If the opportunity came about, it would be, it would be an insane opportunity. So of course I, I'm not, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not very good at saying no to anything, especially when they're really <laughs> cool opportunities. <laughs> so they're all established. They have their thing figured sure. out and they're doing it. But in a, in a hypothetical, you know, magical little world where we can come up with scenarios that may or may not ever happen, I would be like, whoa, that's amazing. Let's yeah. do this. And then you'd look at the schedule and figure out if you can do it. That's <laughs> sweet. <laughs> is like thinking about Crankworks, like the downhill, is the downhill or like the racing, is that, is one more fun, more difficult, like racing versus slope style? It... Um, slope style is always the most fun for me because it's what I came from. Yeah. But doing downhill this year has been has been a blast. And doing the host role for downhill, you get to sit next to uh, people like Andrew Needling, and we had uh, Bernard Kerr for one for one uh, event because Andrew uh, couldn't make it to New Zealand. They changed the you know the border stuff like that. <laughs> and so I I like I said before, if I'm watching the World Cup on my couch, yep. I can't shut up. So being able to actually have a microphone in front of me for that was, yep. was such a blast. And then being able to, you know, sit next to those guys who would be racing any other year has been really exciting. So it's like, like the slope style and the downhill are probably the two that I look forward to the most. And then speed and style is super hard to explain to the audience what it is, mm. but the riding I love. And, uh, you know, the people that I used to compete with are also doing that. So yeah. I enjoy that one. But in, as far as like sheer competition goes, it doesn't get any more cut and dry than downhill. Sure. So for that, I love commentating those ones. Okay. It is what it is. Yeah. Man. I feel like you and needles did really well. And then whenever Ty sat on the mic with you, like I thought it was super good balance. Like your brothers, I guess it works out, but he was really good at it too. Oh yeah. yeah. Like, uh, so when they, so I got to do the host role this year instead of the the sport analyst for yeah. everything. And so that was um, a big change. But with that, they needed to fill what I was doing True. with somebody, right? And so it's hilarious. They were so tight-lipped about who it was going to be. Like, they never told me they were even considering my brother. <laughs> really? Yeah. But he's my brother, so I talked to him. And as soon as he <laughs> said, hey, I got a, got a, uh, you know, a phone call from uh, or an email from boombox of the day i was like oh my god they're wondering if he wants to do it you know <laughs> and so i was like wow this could be really interesting and we didn't know what it was going to be until the very first one yeah and and uh, it's been a blast having him do it he's like very calm and to the point and nothing gets by him yeah like ebbett texted me after joyride and you know mm. ebbett did a lot of commentary yep. and he goes he goes damn nothing gets by t-mac you know <laughs> and so it's been rad because he's always tyler has always been the guy who if uh, if something was missed, if I missed something like an opposite or somebody took off switch footed for something, he would be the only one who would ever notice. Hmm. And uh, and I would bounce ideas off of him and stuff like that. So to have the one person who would ever call me out if I made a blunder be the guy sitting there doing that job now, it's like I feel like I couldn't have anybody better sitting next to me. Hmm. And, you know, he does. We balance out because uh, I'm too excited and he's very calm. So so it's like. We can chill out a little bit when he's talking. And yeah. then when it's time to be excited, then I, I start flapping my app again. <laughs> Ramp it up. <laughs> um, dude, we're getting long the tooth, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do you feel like looking back and 
kind of how it applies today, but like things like Teva, when big deals come in, they're in super hard and then they're gone. Like, like kind of the swings of career sponsorship. You've been pretty consistent with who you've been with, but like, what do, what do you think about that stuff in the past or in the future even? Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting scenario because they were all in, they were doing great things and with a pretty good amount of money. It seemed yeah. like, and I mean, you, you can't on one hand say, you know, put yourself back into 2003 and be like, this sport is cool. And this is the first year it's ever existed. Someday we hope it's, it's huge. You know, you can't say those things, but then also say, you know, fuck corporations and like, they're going to change our sport. It's so cool. You can't say both of those, mm-hmm. you know, you can try to balance those. So when, when a big company comes in and they're doing something like Teva did, that was great. You know, they, they had a big team. They were, they were funding content like team trips, New Zealand uh, to entertain people, you know, and obviously try to sell shoes. They were, they were doing the best trick competition at all the, you know, all the slope styles, which is good for everybody because it, it, gives a stage for the people who maybe couldn't put a slope style run together and it's entertaining for the audience. And, and they were making mountain bike specific shoes and their marketing direction was really unique where they're like, Hey, skate shoes are cool. They're built on skateboarding with people wearing for everything. Uh, we're like a sandal company. We make like, you know, water <laughs> socks and, and sandals, you know, but we want to make casual shoes and our, way of making that cool is going to be we're going to adopt mountain biking so you always want mountain biking and the free ride portion of mountain biking to be looked at as cool and marketable Mm -hmm. you know and you know maybe it's like more core to say that you don't want that but i think to build your sport you do did you get that like when teva came in were people resistant to it not really okay i don't i don't like maybe i was oblivious to it but they had a whole line of shoes that had the mountain bike soul, you know, yep. like, I don't mean like S O U L. I mean like S O L E. Like this shoe is made to be good on a paddle. This one's high top and you should only ride downhill in it. This one's like a, you know, vulcanized chill shoe cruising around. But when you hop on your cruiser, it feels good on your pedal. So that's a really cool idea. And I feel like they just scratched the surface. They were just starting to be successful with yeah. it. They'd invested everything and they got a new president. He looked at everything and went, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. How long till we get our ROI on this? We're doing all this stuff and we're not going to see a return on investment for this many years until we break even. Pull the plug. He's like, we're going to go back to what people know us for and, and just focus solely on that. So it's just a marketing strategy. You know, he didn't yeah. believe in the marketing strategy that was set in place when he took over the ship. And that's the thing with all sponsorship, man. Like if anybody, especially if any rider in the mountain bike industry feels like the bike industry owes them anything, then they're in for a very rude awakening, a big slap in the face. Hmm. Because all of us who make a living in mountain biking, it's, it's all marketing. And we're all at the mercy of whoever's in charge that year making a decision of whether or not we're valuable to their marketing strategy, you know? And, and every rider should, you know, try to do the best things for mountain biking that they can while they're in it, but don't feel like you're going to be in it forever Hmm. because trends can change. Maybe the type of riding that you do, nobody cares anymore. Maybe, you know, it's, it's just not in the cards anymore, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, we're all lucky to be in it for whatever time we have in it because one, dude or chick or whoever can pop into the president role of any company who pays your mortgage, you know, and you think you have a relationship that's symbiotic and you work together and you're helping them sell their product. They might see it otherwise. And that's it. You have to be okay with that. Yep. Has, have you had many swings like that? I've been pretty lucky. Like 
the Teva went away, the Contour camera thing away, oh, went yeah. away, the, the Sony camera thing went away. And these are all like, you know, shoes and cameras and things that aren't, you know, like they exist outside the bike industry as well. So when, when products that aren't exclusive to the bike industry are willing to use mountain biking for marketing, you're like, this is cool. This isn't going to last that long. So in terms of like companies in the industry that I've had long relationships with, like Trek, Fox, Smith, the other Fox, Shimano, Rockstar. I mean, I guess Rockstar is an outside of the industry company as yeah. well, but they have a tendency to like stick with their people. So, so that's all been good. And it's I've been able to you know keep all those. But when those shoe companies and camera companies come, you kind of, it's under the mutual understanding this probably isn't going to last forever, you okay, know? Yeah. So the ones that I've lost, it's kind of been ones that I would expect it's to lose understood. at some point anyways. Yeah. yeah. It's not personal, you know? Are there, are there any gigs or sponsors that have approached you and you're just like, no, I'm not going to do that? Uh, any email that comes from somebody I don't know, you know, like, uh, I don't know. It's weird. Like, I I have an email address that's just on a social media account, you know, but mm-hmm. I I took it off um because I was do, I was doing a little bit of stuff with like uh Jeremiah Dylan Dean for a little bit mm-hmm. and uh he we had this thing where like all right, he's not really my agent, but if he finds something then I'll give him a percentage of it. I'm not going to like give him a percentage of all the stuff I already have. Mm-hmm. Those relationships but he was like, hey, let's set up this email address for you that's super accessible for all social media. So if anybody has a business idea, they can they can hit you with it. And so after a little while, looking at all those ideas that come through, I'm like, this isn't right, man. There's so much stuff that people want to market through your social media channels that have nothing to do with not only nothing to do with mountain biking, but nothing to do with anything you're into. Yeah. And to maintain you know, your authenticity and your integrity. I just went, all right, if these people didn't get my contact info from somebody in the bike industry, you know, maybe it's just not meant to be. That's probably not a good business decision, (laughs) but, but it was just too many weird propositions. And I'm like, whoa, that's the definition of whoring yourself out. You start accepting money from that people to promote that product. Yeah. It seems like in the long term, it's probably the best anyway. Like you might make a quick buck here and there, but yeah, compromise what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I've, I mean, I've done, uh, like a bunch of car commercials and stuff like that. So really? those are like, yeah, like had that Mitsubishi commercial a few years ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then every uh, time that would come on, I'd be like, Hey, that's Mr. Cam. Like, yeah. Boy. And so those things like are always a little funny, but I always look at it like it's what you hope for your sport when you start yeah, your sport, you know? Sure. So like, let's, let's do that. And those things have always come from like, somebody in the bike industry, like, Hey, like there's some buzz going, like they need somebody to flip over a car for a thing, you know, and they want to do it in the bike industry. And I'm like, Oh, that's sick. Let's put my hat in the ring for that. Mm-hmm. You know, strangers approaching you with products that you have no knowledge about and you never would have any knowledge about. It just feels weird. What's some weird, do you have any like that you can remember? Like, seriously, you want to ask me to hawk that? Uh, I could open up that email account right now and read some <laughs> weird ones too. Yeah. <laughs> But like content creator has become such a thing. And you're like, man, is that really what this is? Like, like I have a disdain for the whole clickbait thing, you know, like Mm -hmm. I don't like that. I like things that are, that are there because they're entertaining. I don't want things that are, that are there to fool people into watching them, Mm -hmm. you know? So like when I start my YouTube thing, it's going to be weird because it might fall flat on its face. I, I have some ideas that I think are really cool and I'm really passionate about, executing these ideas, but it might fall flat on its face because I'm not willing to put these clickbait titles and I'm not willing to do these things that I don't believe in. Yeah. But dude, there's a handful of times we get accused for doing clickbait titles, but I feel like 
we try to make them authentic to the content and you're battling to get those people to watch your stuff just to even check it out. Yeah. So I'm not saying like, like if we title this podcast, Ken McCall gossips about someone I can read her. Like yeah. we, wouldn't, we wouldn't do, we wouldn't say that. But oh, like, so you know, that's the one thing that I'm worried about already. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted but, to be honest with this thing. Totally. Yeah. But like, if you call it, I don't know, Cam McCall, like two days in the desert, like your name's got enough that it rings out that people will click, but like you got to get people to get into it. I know, man. You ever seen the movie Idiocracy? <laughs> <laughs> dude, seriously, that's where we're at. I know, at dude. Right it's now. where it's the world we live in right now, and like, uh, it's a struggle because there is so much stuff. There's so much content, and uh, and yeah, to to get noticed, I guess you have to play the game a little bit, maybe. Yeah, know. you've got you've got the name. I don't think you need to do anything we'll crazy see, man. with your I'm titles. Completely, it's the same thing as when you're like getting ready to drop into something, <laughs> and you run over, you know, run it over in your head a million times, and you know that you might crash, but you just accept it and you go. <laughs> it's the same I with can. anything. Dude, that's know? the best. All right, we'll kind of wind it up. You're busted up right now, but if you could take a ride right now, where would you go and what would you ride? Ooh. Um, and am I just riding for myself? Just riding for fun? Yeah, you're going to hop up, stay local, hop out the door and go for okay. a bike ride. Okay, so... Um, no one's around, no obligations. No I, because I haven't been to this place yet, and everybody who uh, has ridden in Oregon has ridden in Oak Ridge, oh, I yeah. would probably go ride in Oak Ridge because that place has such a good reputation. Everybody goes like, it was so sick. It, that's all they say. I've never yeah. been there either. Yeah. yeah. And if I was just going to go for a ride and there's, it didn't have to like be for any reason, it was just to go riding. Like Before I had my shoulder surgery, I was like... A little bit too bunged up to even like go send it, and I had such a blast just riding like some of the trails here because there was no, um, it didn't have to be productive. It was just to go. I went riding by myself, and it was just to be fun, yeah. it, just to have fun, you know. So yeah, if I didn't have any strings attached, I'd probably go ride Oak Ridge, so I'd be able to be in on the conversation. Everybody says that's one of the sickest places I've ever been. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> All right, what as a dad with with two girls, what do you want for your children? Yeah, I definitely want them to find something that they love, something that they enjoy, and and do it not because it's the like right thing to do and it's going to make you money and make you successful. Just do things that they en- enjoy doing. Like like the whole thing about like, oh, do you want your kids to go to college and stuff like that? You're like, if they want to go to college, like, heck yeah. If they have something that is a goal of theirs and the only way to get there is to have a degree and cool there's some purpose for it i don't want my kids to go to college because that's the right thing to do and that's like socially acceptable Mm. if they came up with something whether it's like you know sports they want to pursue some sort of like you know a snowboarding career or something like that obviously i'm like oh i understand that that's right i'm gonna support it Mm. i'm not gonna push it but i'll support it or if they want to be musicians or something like that i'm like i get where that's coming from you're passionate about this you want to create something like like the biggest dream isn't like, oh, my kids, you know, are like successful and they make a lot of money. They might be miserable. I want them to like love what they're doing and create something, you know, mm-hmm. that would, that would be success. What have the, what's being a dad taught you that you didn't know before? Hmm. Yeah. There's, there's less hours in the day <laughs> than you thought. <laughs> no, there's like way more at stake than the things that you used to think mattered, you know? Hmm. 
like everything changes when all of a sudden you have dependence and uh and you look more at like the repercussions of things and uh and what it really means to like care about something so much you would like die for that you know because mm. i used to think i cared so much about competing in slope style that if i died i'd be like okay whatever like that's sick yeah. this is my thing you know but then now it's like if your kid is going to get hit by a car you'd run out there and you'd knock the kid out of the way and take the bus you know like yeah. that's a that's a big eye-opener and you look at everything differently because you're like you it's like super primal you like created these little beings and they exist on the planet <laughs> because you created them with your wife and then you know, How, the only thing that matters is to make sure that they're all right. Yeah, yeah. I was going to try and be funny, and it wasn't funny. I was going to ask, <laughs> how, did, how did you make the kids? I don't get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still <laughs> trying to figure that out. I hope I, hope I don't, like, make another one on accident. <laughs> no, I got snipped. All right. Did you? I did. Nice. Did you? You're I'm, not jinxing, sure. I'm not jinxing sure. anything. My table's no wood. Way, you can knock on it. No way, dude. <laughs> <laughs> hear, that, hear that? Finish off with some, some bird call whistles. Do you still do those? <laughs> So um, I will only do that if it's on a podcast because I don't want anybody to see me doing that. Because it's <laughs> no you video, look like, you look like no an video idiot. evidence. No, you look like an idiot doing that. <laughs> That's sick. Is there anything? Oh, wait, who'd you hate being beaten by? Oh, that for one. sure, <laughs> Jamie Goldman. Oh yeah, yeah. Because um, <laughs> because like I love the guys. Like he lives here too. So I, our kids are like a year apart. Our oldest. My oldest is a year apart from his kid. And, and it's not because uh, anything against Jamie. It was because I had this thought. If you can't be better than the best person in your town, then how do you expect to be better than everybody else in the world? You know? uh. <laughs> and so he was always at a level to where, you know, we could beat one another on any given day because, yeah. you know, we pushed each other so much in the in like the pool jump environment and then we learned to flip on the same day like we like if it wasn't for him i never would have gotten to the point where i got in terms yeah. of like trick riding because he always pushed me so much and and in competitions that's all i thought if you can't beat somebody who lives and grew up in the same town as you how do you expect to beat people from all over the world uh, interesting <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah jamie <laughs> Is there anything he beat me plenty of times? So good job, Jamie. Dude, he's brute. <laughs> I think that same one of those first trips I met you, he was on that root beer color VP free with like a small back wheel. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the first time I met him. It's so funny to think about. Is there anything you thought we might talk about that we didn't? Dude, there's, I didn't, there's so much. I didn't to talk come about. in with any preconceived notions of what we would talk about. I just let you drive the ship and. Figured I would talk too much about every question, and there we go. It dude, worked out. Straight into an iceberg. Here we are. <laughs> no, dude, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. We'll have to uh, we'll have to do more, and maybe go talk to someone else today. See how that goes. Oh, what? Oh, what? We'll I'll follow you. We'll see where we end up. Sounds good, dude. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Vital MTB's The Inside Line podcast. Episodes drop every other Wednesday. Thanks to Jensen USA and Maxis Tires for the support. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at VitalMTB. MTB.